Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald faced truth. The pressure's on, as they say. People say that. Broadcasters say that. Radio shows hosts say that. The pressure is on. How is the pressure on? Well, Oregon is hosting Utah on Saturday, Autzen Stadium. Kyle Whittingham, Utah coach, will be with us. Four o'clock. Make an appointment. Be here for it. Pressure's on Whittingham. Pressure's on the Ducks. Pressure's also on Oregon State. Oregon State ranked in the latest college football playoff rankings, coming in at number 23. You know what are my frustrations with Oregon State? Can I just for a moment express, get something off my chest? This isn't, you know, my peeve of the week. But Oregon State, it just seems to me that every time they suck you in, every time they get ranked, every time they are set up to build on such success is exactly when they tend to have a little setback. Earlier in the season, they got ranked. People went, I, and Beaver fans, diehard Beaver fans told me, oh, this is the week they're going to lose. And I said, no, they're not. Jonathan Smith on today's show, 530. Make an appointment there. You need all kinds of appointments on today's show. Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, is going to be with us this hour, 3.30. Make an appointment. Kyle Whittingham, 4 o'clock. Make an appointment. Jonathan Smith, 5.30. Make an appointment. In fact, you should just leave a standing appointment today, 3 to 6 p.m., right here on this show. We have a great show for you. We're going to start by talking about the expectations of uh, this weekend with Oregon State ho- uh, on the road against Arizona State and the Ducks hosting the Utes at Autzen Stadium. Uh, I don't know for a fact if Bo Nix is going to play, not play. There's some rumblings coming out of Eugene. Will he play? Won't he play? I'll ask Kyle Whittingham uh, how you prepare as a coach for Bo Nix if you are Kyle Whittingham or Ty Thompson. Uh, We'll talk with Jonathan Smith in the 5 o'clock hour, the Oregon State coach, about sort of capitalizing on the momentum that he has built. They're great at home. Oregon State, terrific at home. They have uh, been lights out, 10-1 and one in their last 11 at, at Racer Stadium. That only loss, a three-point loss to USC and Caleb Williams. Like a, That's a very good loss if there's such a thing for Oregon State. But they are different on the road, and they're going on the road to Tempe where they will play an Arizona State team that probably is, you know, Looking one, two, three, Cancun. I don't know. They do that in the NBA towards the end of the season. Is the Arizona State team kind of looking into the season, glaring into the transfer portal? Are they thinking about who the next coach is going to be at Arizona State and what is beyond that? And uh, for the Ducks, and I got to say this, I don't know if you guys dream. I don't know if you have dreams. I don't know if Stephen, you have sports dreams. Do do the teams pop up in your dreams? Yeah, they do. I have a dream that the Blazers win an NBA championship and I can take my kid to the parade. There you go. There's a dream. I had a dream last night, so to speak. Uh, Peter Sampson, do you have sports dreams? I do sometimes. I have had the uh, Blazers parade dream before. 
Okay, I very rarely dream about the sports teams in our state. I had a dream last night. And I woke up thinking, what is wrong with me? Am I too into this? Am I too close to this? Am I hoping and wishing? I had a dream, and it was about Oregon and Utah. And it was about who is going to start at quarterback. And it was one of those dreams where I'm not aware that I'm dreaming. Like, sometimes you have a lucid dream, and you know, hey, I'm dreaming, but I'm just going to go with it. Like, you know, uh, that's kind of me. Like, I'm, I'm generally aware sometimes that I'm having a dream. But last night, I had a dream about Oregon playing Utah. And it was about whether or not Bo Nix was going to play. And I literally was at the field, and it wasn't Autzen Stadium. It was just some random football field in the middle of nowhere. Didn't even have stands around it. And Oregon was playing Utah. And Oregon was on offense to start the game. And guess who was that quarterback? Uh, ooh, I want to guess. Um, Ty Thompson. Ty Thompson was at quarterback. Mm. And on the very first play of the game, uh, Kenny Dillingham went play action and went up top for like a 75-yard touchdown pass down the right sideline. I want you to keep an eye on that. If it comes true, I'm walking away. I'm going straight to Vegas. That's it. I'm done. Okay? It was a 75-yard touchdown pass down the right sideline to an Oregon receiver, and uh, I basically woke up and said, yeah, Oregon's going to be okay. So is that is that me being too close, too deep in a college football season? Maybe. Probably. Very likely. Or maybe my brain is just kind of percolating on, hey, this is a really big football game this weekend, guys. This is it. This is a moment of truth for Oregon. If their season really is going to come to fruition and blossom, and if they're going to go to the Pac-12 championship game, and they're you know going to go to the Rose Bowl, and we're going to celebrate Dan Lanning's first season as what a terrific season, this is a game they have to win. And he's up against Kyle Whittingham, who is like a witch in getting his team ready for late-season games. This is such a mismatch of an experienced coaching staff between Kyle Whittingham, Morgan Scally, his D coordinator, Andy Ludwig, his offensive coordinator. So much experience. Like, these guys have seen some stuff. Like, this isn't like the baby-faced soldiers that we see at the beginning of the movie and saving, saving Private Ryan. This is more like the battle-tested warrior who's making his fifth tour and he's you know Kyle Whittingham has just seen some things he's coached in multiple conferences at the same program he's the dean of the coaches in the conference his coordinators are just there every year there's no turnover at Utah they had they just sort of game plan every year for this point of the season and last year they played their best damn football in November and here they are again and that's what Dan Lanning's up against but meanwhile at Oregon if you're an Oregon fan you watched Oregon at the beginning of this season get smacked by Georgia, 49-3. to It was so bad that America talked about it for about eight weeks after. Every time Oregon won, they went, yeah, but, you know, you saw what happened in week one. No other team in America had that stigma hanging over them. They got beat so badly in week one in Atlanta that no one could forget it. Like, no one will ever forget it. 49-3, to 46-point loss. I just can't get that taste out of my mouth. I can't unsee it. Didn't matter who, didn't matter where, didn't matter what. Uh, you know, we heard all of the pundits sort of talk about that. But you know what Oregon did? Oregon kind of erased that, didn't they? Oregon erased some of that and, you know, righted the ship. And in seven and eight weeks after that, even amid all the discussions, they continued to win and win and win. And so uh, I got to give credit to... Dan Lanning, who came out of that week one loss 
and did not allow Georgia to beat them in week two or week three. And I think week three was the big, interesting game against BYU. No, we now know that's not. it wasn't that impressive of a win. But Oregon kind of got its act together after getting punched in the mouth in week one. So now here they are again. Second time they've been punched in the mouth. Second opportunity to kind of prove to the country, hey, you know what, we're going to matter this year. We're going to be worth the damn. And they're doing it against, guess who, Kyle Whittingham, who happens to game plan for this part of the season. Like, I would much rather be playing Utah if I'm Oregon early in the year, even though they're banged up. They have seemingly figured out who they are. They know who they are. They'll run the football. They'll have Cam Rising at quarterback. This is going to be a huge test for Kyle Whittingham's team, and it's going to be a bigger test for Dan Lanning's team. Guys, what are the factors that you see, or what factors are you looking at as you look to this game? Because I'm going to give you two, and I want to hear from you guys as well. And I'll take calls at 503-417-7575. First and foremost, it doesn't matter if Oregon starts Ty Thompson at quarterback or Bo Nix at quarterback. I need Oregon to commit to running the football. They're good at it. That's what they do. It should be their identity on Saturday night. They should force Utah's defense, which isn't as good as Utah defenses in the past, to stop their run game. Force them to stop the run game. Even if Ty Thompson's at quarterback, it will open things up for him if Oregon commits to running the football. That's first and foremost. Second thing is, schematically, like, Oregon's defense kind of laid back last week. I want to see them attack a little bit. I don't mind you getting beat. This is a great offense to take some chances against, this Utah offense. They've got one wide receiver in Vele who plays outside the hashes. Everything else is tight end oriented, back out of the backfield. This is a good opportunity this week for the Oregon defense to be aggressive and take some chances. It frustrated me against Washington to see Oregon kind of lay back, sit in his own defense, didn't blitz. Yes, they missed assignments. Yes, they had guys on that defense that missed tackles, ran right past uh, Michael Penix Jr. On one, uh, on one play that should have been a sack. But I want to see Oregon be aggressive on defense. I don't mind you making a mistake if you make a mistake full speed. What do you guys want to see? Yeah, you touched on the explosive plays because Utah's not an explosive offense. So if you're Oregon, you can't be sitting back in this game and just letting Utah take it to you because that's what's lost last last year when the Oregon played Utah. They just out physicaled them. Where you know Oregon can stand up that a little bit better this season, I think, and not just uh, stand back. But I think you right, you touched right on it. Coaching, right? The, basically, the first two days of this week, we talked about was it Dan Lanning's fault? Is he getting enough credit? Is he getting enough uh, criticism? This is a matchup where. You would think on paper Kyle Whittingham is the by far better coach. He's proven it. Uh, Dan Lanning is first year. Kyle Whittingham has just been an awesome coach wherever he's been. What does Dan Lanning do to make the adjustments to go into this week? Because right now we all think the coaching edge is going to be on Utah's side. It probably is. But how does Lanning react to that? How Does he have some wrinkles coming out? Or is it the same thing that we saw against Washington where DeBoer really, I thought, coached him around in circles and it's another uh, you know questionable coaching effort out of Dan Lanning? Peter, what are you looking for? Yeah, it sort of leads into what you mentioned talking about looking you know, to be aggressive, big plays, even though it's not really an X's and O's thing. What I'm looking for is I don't want them to play tight. I want them to have not lost that sort of swagger or those vibes that they had just because they lost a game. I mean, look, they bounced back so well from Georgia, went on a run. The offense is rolling. They're moving the ball quickly. Uh, relatively balanced play calling, relatively. But I don't want to see them tight. I Lanning... 
you know, he admitted he wishes he had 10 plays back. Maybe he was overthinking some things or underthinking some things, but I don't want him second guessing himself. And I think there's a real possibility that could ca- happen coming out of this loss. The schedule's so tough going forward. Look, the coaching, it, it, it needs to be better than it was last week, but you don't want to overcoach, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think, look, uh, Dan Lanning said, you know, he didn't want, didn't want to let Washington beat him twice. They can't. They can't afford that. If you're Oregon, you you know you have to. I think there's there's more at stake here than just beating Utah. There's more at stake here than just getting on the track back to Vegas and the conference championship game because Oregon has held the inside track on that spot for most of the season. Um, but I think there's part of this is is you know program wide for the future of Oregon's program that if this this uh, loss of last week is compounded. All of the narrative about Oregon being soft, Oregon recruits being the kind of players that just come to Oregon for the uniforms and the lockers, all that tired stuff that is from the past sort of rears back up and people go, oh, once they were out of the college football playoff, they stopped playing. And I don't want to see that happen. And I'm really interested to see Tosh Lapoy on the defensive side of the ball. He's the coordinator. His name needs to be said when they play as badly as they did a week ago. And Kenny Dillingham on the offensive side of the ball. And Dan Lanning as the CEO of the program. I really want to see Oregon sort of just come back and compete. If they get beat, fine. But come back, compete, play a great game. And, yes, injuries are tough. Everybody's had to deal with them. Utah's had to play without Cam Rising. Went on the road, won at Pullman without Cam Rising. They had to play without their their all-world tight end from the beginning of the season, and then they lost Dalton Kincaid late in the late in the year, and he sat out a game. Everybody's had to deal with injuries. Oregon State's dealing with injuries. Everybody is losing players at this point of the season. So let's see what Oregon's depth. We've heard so much about what it's worth. Let's see those running backs that Oregon has compiled that have played so well to this point of the season. Uh, you know, Bucky Irving, I've just been really impressed with him. And Whittington, I'm impressed with him. I'm impressed with the outside receivers when they're not faking injuries. I just think I think everything in this Oregon offense leads me to believe that Oregon can score points in this game, even if it's Ty Thompson at quarterback. But, it, but also, it comes down to that defensive presence. You know, I'll ask Kyle Whittingham about it coming up at 4 o'clock. Mike Parker joining us in about 15 minutes. I want you to leave it right here. Are the Blazers going all the way? We have to address that this hour as well. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I wrote a little bit about UCLA today. I guess I wrote a lot about UCLA. Looked harder at their survey. They're like 24 hours away from the Regents making a decision on their fate to the Big Ten Conference. I'm going to say just two things, two things only on the UCLA front. First of all, the Bruins Athletic Department lost $65 million in 2021. $65 million. About $40 million of that had to do with the pandemic. Oregon State ran at a deficit of $35 million in the same year, same fiscal year. Oregon was upside down by also $65 million. So I get it, you know. Every AD, every athletic department in the co- in the conference would have looked hard at possibly going to the Big Ten if the Big Ten is offering extra money. Looked hard, maybe not jumped, but looked hard at it. So I'm trying to be fair to UCLA here because it's really easy to pile on UCLA. It's really easy to lament, lament the loss of tradition. It's really easy to get frustrated with the Bruins for wanting to escape and find an emergency exit. As Bill Walton said, look to the, look to the Midwest for the answers. 
Um, but uh, that said, I looked at their survey, their athlete survey, and you keep hearing the number, 600 athletes were surveyed. And guess what I found out? 111 responded out of the 600. UCLA did not text the survey to their athletes. They did not have their coaches say, hey, you're going to get a survey. Make sure you fill it out. No, 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 no. UCLA emailed the survey. 111 of the 600 athletes that were emailed responded. 80 women, 31 men. I uh, reached out to a source at UCLA, and I said, hey, what happened there? And the source said, quote, kids live in the now, not two years from now. It went to their email. Some responded, most didn't, end quote. You can read it all at johnconzano.com, but I don't think UCLA was interested really in finding out what its current athletes thought. I don't think they were. I think they just needed to be able to tell the regents, hey, we checked with our athletes. We did a survey. And... UCLA will tell you that among those who responded, um, that uh, that 35 percent thought it was a good idea, seven percent thought it was a bad idea. They'll hold that up. Hey, 35 percent said it was a good idea, but only seven percent said it was a bad idea. Well, what about the other 58 percent? Got me thinking. So I went in search of that answer, and it turns out that the other 58 percent answered that they either had no opinion or that they needed more information. So <laughs> the, more, the vast majority of people said, I either have no opinion on this or I need more information. It kind of, you know, it bad, good, like we can debate that. I care more about what the kids at UCLA feel than I care about what I feel or what you feel sitting in your living room watching UCLA play. Like I'm more into that. Um, among those who responded, the, again, the 111 people who filled out the survey, uh, 77% said that they were concerned about increased travel times. 66% noted that they were concerned about missed class times. So there are students. I am uh, a little concerned about UCLA's athletes. And the problem is most of these athletes know they're not going to be at UCLA beyond 2024. And there's a, you know, there's not really a way to pull potential UCLA athletes. The recruiting classes really, you know, we could, I guess we could wait and see who shows up in 2023 and then ask them, hey, how do you feel about next year? But I just don't know if the athletes are ever going to have a voice in this. And it, again, we come back to the NCAA system. I'm just going to take a shot at the NCAA for a second here. Uh, you know, the NCAA has never really cared about athletes. The NCAA has cared about the money that it can generate and the jobs it can generate for the grown-ups who are making money on these athletes. And it's why a lot of us are going, hey, I'm okay with NIL. It's time the athletes got paid. But, again, I'm looking at the financial problems of UCLA's athletic department, $65 million upside down in the last fiscal year about 18 million or 20 million in the previous two years. Uh, before that, they, they were even, they broke even. And I'm thinking to myself, UCLA really is just trying to solve their financial problem by jumping to the Big Ten. And I'm not even sure what the travel costs and the cost of mental health and uh, tutors and, you know, hotel rooms. Like, you know, are they going to make that much more? They're not going to make up 65 million. They might make up 8 million by my math, 10 million. They're not going to make up $65 million. They're just not going to do it. 
they're going to have problems anyway. So I just wish that I wish that people would just be more transparent. When you say we've surveyed 600 athletes, and then what happens is a bunch of media members pass that on like, hey, they surveyed 600 athletes. I, I, I looked at the numbers, and I'm like, that's not 600. So I, I just did a little digging. It was 111 athletes, and the majority of the athletes who responded are not even in sports that were affected by the travel and the move to the Big Ten. It's ridiculous. Let's go to the phone line. Sean's in Sandy. Sean, what's up, man? Hey, you know, I hear you, John, but this is kind of ridiculous to think that this is going to be transparent. You know, big business and corporations aren't transparent, and we can't talk like this is our dad's age when they're taking, like, six-hour bus rides. These are plane rides we're talking about. You know, these guys aren't freezing their ass off on a bus. It's totally different now. And this is just these schools are not going to talk to the students about this. These students aren't even going to be here in only a couple years. And these schools are going to make the decisions they think is best for them in the long haul, just like anybody else should. Yeah. Is it best for them, though? Is it best for them? I keep coming back to that. Like, I think they're going to get slapped on the wrist tomorrow. I think they'll still leave. The regents will slap them on the wrist and they'll leave. But I'm wondering, if is it best for them or does it solve just a problem if you're like the athletic director at UCLA or the university president? It feels like it may solve a problem for them, but that's about it. I think you're right, John. This is just a microwave uh, solution. They're just trying to get the uh, quick money now. And they're not really looking at the long haul and really what's good in, in their whole region because they're really missing the big picture on this. Yeah. And they're just going for the money. Have a great yeah. day. Yeah, and look, hey, look, selfishly, like, you know, I told some people at UCLA today, I said, I don't care if you leave. I don't care if you stay. I want this to be over. And, I, you know, I want you to do what's best for your athletes and best for your campus and best for your conference. And if it's not leaving, then unwind it and stay put and if it is leaving if it's a no-brainer for you then god bless you go but we uh we got to move on at some point and i just worry that like you know the athletes were supposed to have a voice they are in this era of the ncaa athletes and the voices of athletes were supposed to matter doesn't feel like they were really trying to get some input and data from the athletes if they were they would have texted them or they would have told their coaches, hey, in your respective sport, we need your athlete to fill it out. They would have done that. They didn't. I want you to leave it here. Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, is next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Longtime Oregon State broadcaster, voice of the Beavers, Mike Parker, does a fantastic job. If you uh, listen to Oregon State sports, or maybe even if you don't, you have appreciated Mike Parker's play-by-play abilities. He's joining us now, longtime broadcaster, Mike Parker with us. How are you, sir? John, I'm well. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Thanks for having me on. You, you must have heard a little bit of a rant I went on because you were kind enough to text me and say, you're hot. Maintain that heat. Well, that was two days ago. I don't know if I can work up a, a heat on command, but, but when I think about what Stuart Mandel wrote on Monday in The Athletic, I, I can get worked up again. Let me ask you, because you're right. 
somebody who was walking through the, I think it was the Valley Football Center, told me Mike Parker is on fire right now. He is just <laughs> blistering the national media. Uh, yeah. and, you know, and so what, like Mandel and some of these national guys, they're not here, right? They're not covering the Pac-12. They're not in the stadiums. They're not, and they're sitting at 20,000 feet saying the Pac-12 sucks, mm-hmm. the Pac-12 stinks, the Big 12's better, the Big 10's better. And after a while, it chaps everybody, I think. It does, John, and I just for the heck of it, just to make sure I could get hot again, I went and looked back at what he wrote, and I actually have the paragraph that when I read it in the media room at Valley Football Center on Monday, I just, you know, I went off in the moment. Here's what he wrote, his lead in his 20 thoughts, and he's an excellent writer. He covers the national scene, so I understand that he won't have the same view as you or Wilner or Jerry Allen down the road or or, uh, where I sit in Corvallis, but here's what he wrote. Quote, for Pac-12 fans who've suffered through six years of increasing irrelevance, first by annually missing the college football playoff, then due to recent pillage from the Big Ten, Saturday looked to be a rare moment in the spotlight. Yet again, the conference can't have nice things, unquote. (laughs) You know, if that's the take from the, the amazing weekend in our conference, then I just feel that's ridiculous. As if, and I know in the age of relevance, and you've got to make the CFP, and we have a media rights contract coming up and all of that, and we want to have the best possible value in that, and I suppose a player in the national championship picture helps that. I, I get all of that. And if it's USC, that's not helpful because they are gone. But on the other hand, the beauty of the college football season and even the greatness, I believe, I don't want to get too Bill Walton-esque here, but the Conference of Champions, the greatness of the conference is that part of the reason we don't get people as often through is it's too hard to navigate because it's too deep. It's too good. It's not terribly mediocre. I mean, the lack of more appearances in the CFP does not necessarily speak to the mediocrity of the product as much as how good the product, in a sense, is up and down the line, that Arizona can go to the Rose Bowl and win, that Washington can go down the road, a double-digit dog perhaps, and win, and that the Beavers can take Washington and USC to the wire and nearly knock them out of you know their chances to win. The conference is good, John, and I get tired of this idea that, in, and, and even his phraseology, for Pac-12 fans who suffered through six years, we are not Pac-12 fans in the sense that we're all sitting around as Pac-12 fans on our given Saturdays as Pac-12 fans. We're fans of Oregon State, of Washington State, of Oregon, of Cal, of Stanford, of USC, not Pac-12 fans per se. Now, in the end, I like our conference when it does well, but I'm, I don't think any Oregon State fan is going to be crushed that Oregon law. Oh, they're, oh, I'm so sad Oregon lost. They were a good chance for us to get through to the CFP. No, Beaver fans, they celebrated that at Research Stadium because it's a rivalry, and you you don't want your rival to go to the CFP if you're not going to go. I mean, you, you, you're, you're a fan not so much of the Pac-12, but of each individual school within it. And in the big picture, you want the Pac-12 to prosper, yes, and get a good TV contract, yes. But on a week-to-week basis, I didn't experience quote-unquote, yet again, the conference can't have nice things. I thought Saturday was an amazing weekend in the conference. Six teams ranked in the in the college football yeah. playoff rankings more than any other conference in America. Why no love there? Well, <laughs> that's a great point. But it, because we have reduced, John, and I, I haven't liked it from the start. At the beginning of the college football season, the promos on ESPN and elsewhere ask the question, 
who's in. As if the only thing that matters is who's going to be end up in that top four conversation, and it just isn't. Now, I suppose somebody could say, well, that's because you're at Oregon State and you haven't been in relevant like that. For Well, yeah, okay, maybe there could be an element of that. I can understand to a degree why an Oregon fan this week, oh, my gosh, we, we were getting back into the CFP picture and now we're not. But I still hope there's a galvanizing sense for any fan that isn't maybe in that conversation right now to think about wanting a conference championship, to think about going to a place called the Rose Bowl, a great consolation prize evidently these days. I just, I'm just i old enough and have enough reverence for that game and for the history of the conference to still think winning a conference championship means a lot, means something. And this whole idea, and after Michigan State lost at Washington, I read something in The Athletic that said, for all practical purposes, Michigan State season is over. Yeah. And, you know, they had 11 weeks to go. I just don't like reducing everything, John, to getting into that Final Four. Mike Parker with us, voice of Oregon State Athletics. Uh, Mike, I think you speak for a lot of Pac-12 fans that are fans of Washington and Oregon and other schools. It's frustrating every week, and now that the rankings come out, it's every Tuesday to sit and watch and hear, oh, Oregon lost to Georgia in week one, uh, you know, as if they should have been penalized all along for, for wanting to play a big game and play an important game. This this sport is broken. It's The system is broken, yeah. and I know they're trying to fix it, but, you know, now you have media and television driving the bus and you got a lot of athletes in Olympic sports that will be affected by the possibility of UCLA and USC leaving to the Big Ten. I mean, it's messy right now. Yeah, it is. And, and, and you, you, John, I'm surprised you used the word the possibility. Are you still thinking that, that it may not happen and that UCLA at least might be forced to stay? I mean... You use the word the possibility. You don't consider it a done deal? I don't until tomorrow. Now, I, I keep saying okay. 90%, but I was on yeah. the phone today with some administrators at UCLA, and I asked them for a percentage, and they said 95. And these were people that said 99 weeks ago. Mm. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think the regents are probably going to try to save face, slap them on the wrist, give them a financial penalty, say you should have talked to us before you did it, but – there, I just wonder. I wonder if the governor in California, who who can be a little squirrely, I wonder if the governor is going to put his foot down and, and make this an issue. Yeah, that's interesting, John. And what, what I found interesting, too, is I was preparing, and you're right, the sport feels broken in, in, in a lot of respects that you're touching on. But I was surprised getting ready for the Beavers to go down to Tempe and play Arizona State. I sort of look back over the history of Arizona State in football and the controversial late Frank Cush and his methods and his era down there and the things that he did. And the, but along the way, I read about something that I wasn't familiar with and wondered, this isn't the first time. Back in 1959, thereabouts, when the PCC dissolved before the formation of the AAWU and so on and the, the schools that broke off during a scandal, I know this is going way back in its ancient history, but it feels relevant in this sense. There was talk of something called the Airplane Conference, where Washington, California, USC, a few other schools were going to combine with the military academies and some other prestigious academic schools, I think Penn State, I mean, there were other, it was all over the country, and they called it the airplane conference because these schools would eventually have to take these long flights to go play their football games. That was in 1959, John, so it surprised me. It didn't happen. Somebody in the Pentagon put a stop to it, from what I read, but I guess the point is, 
it's broken, yes, and when I think about the student-athletes and the other sports that you're referring to and the, the road trips, that they have no idea. We really have no idea what that's going to look like and feel like for them. I think it's going to be ridiculous for them to have to undergo all of those. Uh, but they were talking about doing that in 1959, John. That surprised me. If if Oregon State wins this week, it sets up a huge rivalry game with Oregon. By the way, are we naming this thing? Are we calling it the game formerly known as the Civil War? <laughs> what are we calling it? John, I ask that question every once in a while, and don't receive a proper or good answer. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be called. I don't know if you've had a leader in the clubhouse at all back in the early days when that became a story. The rivalry game is what it is now. At some point, I feel like marketing opportunities are too great that something's got to, you know, something else has got to replace that. But as of now, I don't know. But the game formerly known as the Civil War, I guess, works for now. And you're right. If the Beavers do win, and that's another play, speaking of history, the Beavers have won one time in that stadium against ASU in the last 53 years, once. Now, they did beat Notre Dame in a game called the Fiesta Bowl on New Year's night of 2001, but they've only beaten Arizona State once there in 53 years. So they have sort of a – they have to buck history a little bit, but Jonathan, Jonathan did that last year at USC, and I'm saying he's going to do it again this time around, and the Beavers will go into that rivalry game at 8-3 and three with a you know maybe one of the – the upper-tier bowl games in the conference to play for if they can find their way through that and win. I'm excited about whatever happens over the next couple of weeks. What a great job Jonathan has done and Trent Bray and transforming the defense, John. It's been fun to be around it. The health of Oregon State, I guess everybody's at that point. Oregon's dealing with it. Utah's dealing with it. Uh, I, you know, There were a few guys that went down last week. Uh, how concerned are you about the overall health of this team? Quite, quite. Uh, but encouraged by, the, as Jonathan articulated Monday in his press availability, it's cliche-ish but true, the next man up philosophy that every program adheres to and preaches. The Beavers had a lot of next men who had to step up, a lot of people who hadn't seen many reps, people playing positions they'd never played on the field, but because they're football players and were asked to do some things, actually performed them pretty well, albeit against a a California team really scuffling, and I really like Bill Musgrave and was sorry, you know, that, that he was let go the very next day. But, you know, he's had a rough run of it there offensively this year, not only this year but in the past couple of years. So that had to be a tough call for Justin Wilcox. But even though it was against a, a Cal team that, you know, was struggling, I thought some guys in the heat of the moment stepped in and played well. And that shows that in the practices and scout team stuff that's going on, Jonathan and his staff are doing a good job to keep guys ready. There's still a lot of wait and see, what ifs. I don't know much about you know, status updates on, on where the Beavers are heading into Saturday's early kickoff. But I do think they're equipped well enough, uh, even without some of the key guys that may not be back yet, I still think they can go down there and find a way to win. You know, Mike, it's been fun to see Jonathan build it to this point. Where's the ceiling? Do you think there's another? Like, he's taken immense steps from going from a two-win team to now a team that has got a chance to win nine regular season games, maybe ten if they win a bowl game. That is a huge leap. Um, we've seen, you know, is it now about sustaining that, or is there another step for him in the next couple seasons? I do think there's another step, John, and I think it's somewhat – 
it's somewhat similar to not necessarily what Dennis did. Dennis inherited it, and he, he'll be the first to tell you that Mike Riley and that staff left him some good players. He augmented it quickly with some junior college talent and energy and then just brought a swagger and a belief in the guys. And in two short years, in his second year, he's in that aforementioned Fiesta Bowl. Jonathan has gone about it. He, he didn't inherit what Dennis did, for one thing, but he's also gone about it a bit more methodically. And I think a little bit more analogous to the run Coach Riley got on where in the mid-2000s, the Beavers had a four-year stretch where they were 36 and 17, and in 8 and 9 were playing that game then known as the Civil War with a chance to go. And back then that meant, not to the CFP, everybody talked about, you know, with a chance to go to the Rose Bowl, which is still for me in this conference and a longtime fan of what it means to play in the Rose Bowl. That's still, when you talk about a ceiling, I'm not going to sit here and say, well, there'll be a player in the CFP next year or soon. I'm talking about winning a conference championship, and I believe Jonathan is building towards that kind of program where this year, you know, you I know the Beavers pulled some things out of the fire uh, in Northern California this year, so I know you could argue, well, you know, they're 7-3, and three, but they could be 9-1, and one. yeah, but they could also, you know, they could be 5-5 five and five right now, too. I get that. But I think the way he's gone about it, John, he's building towards a team like Riley's teams there in the mid-2000s and late that were relevant into the final week to win a conference championship, and I think he's going to get there soon. I really do. Sun Bowl representatives will be at the game on Saturday in Tempe. Uh, I was told mm-hmm. by somebody at Arizona State they aren't coming to see ASU. Um, <laughs> is, is a Sun Bowl, because it's a step up from the L.A. Bowl, I mean, obviously, you'd like to win win out and do the best you possibly can. Is a Sun Bowl a step in the right direction? Absolutely, it is. I, I will say, selfishly speaking, that you know that I've been to two of those, and they're great. The people in El Paso do it. I mean, it's a it's a underrated bowl experience, as far as I'm concerned, just in terms of how they embrace the event, and even the fact that you and I wasn't aware. I hadn't heard that there would actually be Sun Bowl reps there, but that's not, we don't see quite as much of that anymore. You know, the, the jackets on and you know that they're representing bowl games. That used to be something we, we would look forward to in that 2000s run where you had a chance to get to a postseason game and the bowl reps would come around. That's still part of the tradition. And I like the Sun Bowl. It's one of the older bowls and we've had two great experiences there in my time at Oregon State, and I know we'd have another good one, and it would be a step up. I will say that uh, the Holiday Bowl I've heard exists, and I think I see scores of games of teams that play in that game. I've never been there. I'm not really sure it's real. That's the one bowl game someday, somewhere along the way, of other of course, than the granddaddy itself, that I'd like to see. And somehow, some way, I was hoping, I think, with one more win this year, the Bees might have been in a position, if not to challenge in Vegas for the conference title, to maybe get themselves into that echelon. But whether they stop short of the Alamo again or Vegas or the Holiday, the Sun Bowl's definitely a, a big step up, I think, from last year. Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun to watch this team. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm eager to see where they go from here. You've done a fantastic job this season calling these games. Are you still having fun? You know, if I go back and Mike Parker 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where's your level of joy in calling a game right now versus before? You know, John, I think if anybody heard the call um, that I had 
uh, when Treshawn Harrison stole the ball away and then ran down the right sideline at Stanford yeah. to score. I, I don't think anybody would say, boy, he he's certainly not enthusiastic about his job anymore. I, I don't think they would come away with that impression or Coletto scoring on the final play at Fresno State. The moments are sweet, John. I, I've loved college football, college sports, you know, since I was seven or eight years old and the opportunity, the honor to get to call the games for the Beavers and moments like that. They're, uh, no, I'm not. It, it's as joyous as uh, ever before, and uh, I'm loving it and grateful to be doing it. I want to play that call. Here's Mike Parker, Treshawn Harrison, Oregon State with the game winner at Stanford, 28-27. Ben takes the shotgun snap. Will Branson throws down the right sideline. And over the shoulder catch by Harrison, 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Beavers! Treshawn Harrison, the catch, 13 seconds to play. The Beavers take the lead. There it is. Uh, man, it, he made, they made a play. I got mad when people say they stole the game because I said, no, 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 that's you, – you, Treshawn made a play. Gulbertson made a throw. Yeah, yeah, and, John, the other thing, too, there was 24-10 going to the fourth quarter on the road. And not only did Gulbertson, who I think has grown each week – you know, people have argued about quarterback play. Well, if you if a healthy chance and maybe chance without some of the – the issues he was having earlier, you might be a 9-1 team right now if quarterback play was a little bit better. Well, you know, in that game at Stanford, down 24-10 going to the fourth, the throw he made to Silas Bolden to begin that comeback was it was a great catch. Don't get me wrong, Silas made a brilliant catch, but the throw was perfectly made in a perfect spot for Silas to at least have a chance to get that touchdown. And then I thought he operated that last drive, completed three passes with no timeouts, and, yeah, Harrison made that play, and it was spectacular. But Ben put the ball up where Treshawn could – his guy could go get it, and the rest is history. Stanford blew their coverage. The safety should have come up and tackled Treshawn, and he kind of inexplicably slowed down, and Treshawn scored. Yeah, I get that. But you're right, John. The Beavers made plays in both the Fresno State and Stanford games late, big plays, to pull those out. I want you to have fun this weekend. Go have fun in Tempe uh, and uh, bring Oregon State another win. Uh, it set up a, If Oregon wins, it sets up a hell of a game formerly yep. known as the Civil War. So I look forward to that. <laughs> John, I appreciate you having me on. I love what you and Wilner do. And keep up the great work covering this great conference. You guys do a great job of it. Thanks for doing it. Mike Parker, there he is. Follow him on Twitter. I tweeted out his handle. And uh, catch him on the Beaver broadcast. He is always interesting, always fired up, uh, and, uh, and really good at what he does. I want you to leave it right here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I've been telling you all day to make appointments. I hope you kept your appointment and you heard Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers. Coming up, Kyle Whittingham. Utah coach, top of the hour. Later in the show, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach. On tomorrow's show, Dan Lanning, University of Oregon head coach. He'll join us in the 4 o'clock hour tomorrow. Uh, we got big guests tomorrow as well. Kelly Graves, uh, Oregon women's basketball coach, will be on tomorrow. Also, I've been exchanging voicemail messages with John Robinson, the longtime USC head coach. He and I keep missing each other. We have an appointment tomorrow, speaking of appointments, 
to tape an interview that I would like to play on tomorrow's show or Friday's show. So big guests all week long. I appreciate you being here for it. Josh in Vancouver called in about a half hour ago. He wants to talk about UCLA. Josh, what's on your mind? So, John, I got, I got, I would love your feedback on a thought that I have, and then uh, I wanted to share just an opinion on on a similar topic related to the Pac-12. But first, to the UCLA thing. So, the first thing I'm curious about is the further and further that you dig into the move with UCLA and the Regents and everything that they're kind of discovering, and and the more that you kind of start peeling this thing back to find that there's really not the a financial, equitable, large jump that justifies them making this move, um, I'm starting to question if part of this move is wrapped up in uh, personal motivation and gain for administrators that mm. could see this as an op- opportunity for them to cash in personally, financially. And what I mean by that is, is the minute that everything goes into effect, they make the move, more money is going to be, you know, put in and infused to UCLA, the first thing that all these administrators are going to be pointing out to their bosses and the conference and the presidents and everybody that decides what paychecks they get is, well, our job's a lot harder now. Yeah. So all right. All right. Gonna you're gonna. With- I gotta cut you off because I gotta get to break. It's a great point, and I think you're right. I think that there are some interested parties here. We'll get more into it in the four o'clock hour. B F F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Utah always seems to be peaking at the right time. Kyle Whittingham, a frequent guest on this show, is at the center of that. Uh, Coach, thanks for joining us. Want to know, like, we're all interested as human beings in trying to be at our best when we need to be at our best. How is it the, the art and science of getting a football team to play its best football late in the year when it counts. It seems like you have that figured out. Well, first of all, I think there's some things that have to align. Uh, you got to stay healthy, and, and we've uh, done a pretty good job of that this season. And had had uh, you know a minimal amount of uh, guys missing games, so that's that's helped out. But uh, I think the key is just being consistent in uh, your approach and not getting too high and too low, and and just uh, trying to maintain an even keel and and uh, having your players you know, go through the preparation process uh, consistently each week and, and uh, they know what to expect and, and uh, you know, that's pretty much the long and short of it. The, uh, you know, how do you take the temperature of a team? I'm always curious because you have so many players, they're all different, you know, it's not like you can send out a, a group email, I doubt they would even respond to an email, but it, like, give me an idea of how you kind of figure out where your team is on a day-to-day basis, uh, mentally. Yeah, good. Okay. Yeah. Good question. Um, I would say, first of all, you know, we have a leadership council that I meet with throughout the season, and, and again to get the you know the the pulse of the team, as you mentioned, and and uh, trying to uh, you know uncover any issues that may be going on that I'm not aware of. And then uh, same thing with our captains. I, I do the leadership council once every three or four weeks, and the captains we have a weekly meeting, and uh, again just pick their brain and anything that's on their mind or, or concerns that they may have, and and. Uh, for me, anyway, that's a good way to stay tuned in to, to what's going on internally and, and any uh, problems that may be needing addressed. 
Oregon uh, obviously has a question about who they will play at quarterback. You've been there at different points in your career. Uh, how do you prepare for a team when when you're not sure what they're going to be and what they're going to look like on offense? Yeah, well, first of all, I think we'd be shocked if it's not Bo Nix. I mean, he is such a tough competitor and, and uh, a guy that, you know, he's going to – you know, he's just going to be there if at all possible, and we we were planning for that. But but uh, if not, then you got to shift to Plan B and and uh, you know know the backup and know his strengths and weaknesses and and be able to adjust your calls and your and your play accordingly. But uh, you know we're we're going in thinking that it's going to be uh, Bo and and uh, do our best to try to slow him down. The uh, the uh, information that coaches give out or don't give out it's become really interesting to watch college football where. More and more programs, I think, are playing it close to the vest. Are you in favor of some kind of uniform injury report, or do you kind of just you you came up in this world? Do you do you like sort of the uncertainty? You're comfortable with it? Well, first of all, we're one of those schools that have played it close to the vest ever since I've been the head coach. And my my philosophy has always been: if you don't have to tip your hand or divulge anything, why would you? <laughs> and uh, it doesn't make any sense. But that being said, if there was a uniform policy or procedure much like the NFL, then we'd be happy to conform with it. And so it's just a situation where if there isn't a reason or a, a mandate to, to uh, you know, let everyone know about what's going on injury-wise, then, then why do it? But but if it's a level playing field and everyone is required to to uh, divulge, then uh, we'd be okay well. A lot of paranoia, too, out there. And I, <laughs> yeah, I, I've true. been around, I've been around basketball coaches and football coaches. Some of them are like, you know, who's that person sweeping down on the concourse? Find out who they are. Like, where do you think that stems from? Uh, competitive nature, probably. You know, everyone's worried that someone's getting a little bit of a leg up on you by some sort of intel or, or whatever the case may be. But, but yeah, that uh, what you say is exactly right. And that, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, coaches have that phobia, I guess you could say, and a little bit of uh, overprotectiveness, maybe. I'm looking at the, the action on the sideline. Like, people are holding up shields and signs, and there's multiple, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, personnel. That, you know, I think we could tell from the press box that some of these people are not involved in the in the system. But it's funny. Um, hey, you know, these books always come out like the seven habits of highly successful people. Does Kyle Whittingham have a habit that you do every day that uh, is just that pops into mind when I ask that? Well, without a doubt, but first of all, that book was written by Stephen R. Covey, who's Britt Covey's grandfather, who's, who was on our team for, for several years, and so that's, you know, we know about that book very well. In fact, uh, I grew up in the same neighborhood as Britt's uh, grandfather, so uh, he was a great man and, and uh, obviously, uh, you know, a very smart guy, but but anyways, me personally, I'm a, I'm a creature of habit, absolutely. Uh, I believe in routine and structure, and, and I think players thrive on that. I think that's, that, you know, they, they really... Uh, like to have the consistency of a of a structured program and and uh, you know know what to expect each day and and uh, you know it just becomes a situation where they get into uh, almost a zone during the season and and uh, if you throw that thing out of whack then then uh, it can upset the balance of what you got going on so yeah I, I have a routine and it's uh, you know a daily routine on Monday and then a Tuesday and a Wednesday so every day is not the same but every Monday is the same every Tuesday is the same and so forth. Do you have like, are you a morning coffee guy? Read the paper? What do you do? <laughs> no, get in and staff meeting right out of the gate. We have 7 a.m. staff meeting and and uh, not a coffee drinker and, and uh, not a paper reader. Just, uh, get right into the film work and every, anything that, uh, you know, that 
is the task at hand. That film work has changed, hasn't it, now that you can have oh, it on an iPad and whatnot? Wow. Yes, dramatically. When I first got into coaching, we had uh, 16 millimeter film. I mean, that's it was it was cumbersome. It was hard to, uh, you know, just deal with. And you know, recruiting wise, trying to get film on a recruit was nearly impossible. Then we moved to to uh, VHS format, and that made it a little bit easier, but still. Uh, you know, really not that accessible. Then we moved into the the uh, digital age, and now it's uh, you know all computerized, where you you just push a button and you can have every piece of film or fact on a recruit or a team or a, you know an opponent that you want. So it's it's crazy how accessible everything is now. Last weekend, nine of the twelve Pac-12 schools started a transfer quarterback. Is this what you expect to see moving forward? Ideally, you want to develop a guy, but what do you think? What do you think is happening here with quarterbacks? Yeah, that's probably the most uh, affected position by the transfer portal, and and uh, that seems to be a room, the quarterback room, needing to be rebuilt pretty much on an annual basis with with uh, guys. If they don't see the you know the daylight and in, in, you know as far as playing time, then most quarterbacks are going to try to get into a situation where they can uh, get some playing time, and so I think that'll become uh, an increasing trend. And and you're right, I think uh, nationally, it's my, our recruiting coordinator the other day told me that it's approaching 50% or right out around 50% of starting quarterbacks in the country uh, are transfer portal guys. Again, on film, what, are, what do you see them doing now versus maybe early in the year? Well, I see him doing, you know, an exceptional job offensively, uh, leading the conference in offense as far as total yardage. Uh, it all goes through the quarterback. He's a tremendous athlete um, and a perfect fit for what they're doing. And I've been a Bo Nix fan for since he was at Auburn. You know, I, did, I don't know him personally. We didn't recruit him. Uh, you know, we don't recruit much in that part of the country. But I watched him at Auburn and thought, you know, I just had a game on and just, uh, you know, a couple of years back and thought this guy is really good and really competitive and my kind of guy and then of course I wasn't really excited when I found out he was transferring to Oregon because I knew I knew how uh, capable he was and but uh, they're doing a great job and and primarily they're a run first team and that's what they're doing exceptionally well you know 240 yards a game and and uh, I still am old school and believe that if you can run the football on offense and defend the run on defense you're always going to have a chance uh, but you know that being said they're throwing the ball exceptionally well in addition I mean he's a 73 percent completion percentage and so there really is no weakness on that offense they get an outstanding offensive line quarterback I, i've talked about uh, running backs run hard and then with violence they finish runs uh they get what they need out of the tight ends you know they employ a tight end uh, most every snap and the receivers make big plays down the field so they got it they got it all going on andy ludwig your offensive coordinator i think he's done a hell of a job i've known him for years uh, he's got to be salivating over what washington did to oregon's defense that said, you, you expect some adjustments. How do you game plan knowing that they're going to self-scout and adjust? Yeah, it's a cat and mouse game and a, and a chess match. And, and uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, okay, they know this and they know that we know that and we know that they know that we know. And, you know, you just keep going back and forth and trying to, trying to uh, stay one step ahead. And so I think the key is to not outsmart yourself and not get uh, too, uh, not take, too much of a departure from what you do week to week and, and Andy's very good at that you know very steady and you know we have our core set of offensive plays that we run weekly and then he adds you know as per the next opponent what he thinks will work uh, a 
few new wrinkles, and and that's what you do. You can't you can't uh, have wholesale changes from week to week offensively, and and uh, we you know have done a good job of not doing that. Before I let you go, uh, you know, there were a few years ago as you guys were making the transition to the Pac-12, you know, it wasn't like conference championship time, but you had administration, university president, you had support. What did that mean to you? Oh, it means everything. If you don't have support uh, from above, then you're just, you know, beating a dead horse. There's no way you can survive. And so we've uh, been able to upgrade our stadium, uh, our practice facilities, our, our uh, you know, facility where our offices are and locker room and weight room and all that type of thing. And uh, budget has increased. And so we've grown as a program uh, ever since we joined the Pac-12. And we had to. It's either grow or die. And and uh, so we're very grateful that we've been able to keep pace and, and uh, continue to uh, be competitive. All right, Coach, uh, any questions for before I let you go? No, no questions. No questions? You, All right. The offer. All right. Yeah. Thank you. You're back. All right. I'll see you Saturday at the stadium. Right. Thank you. Take care. Take Bye-bye. care. And there he goes. Kyle Whittingham. See, I, I always try to offer the coach to have a question. Why Why am I the only one who gets to answer questions? See, I'm not selfish. Good stuff from Kyle Whittingham. What I take from that? Um, first of all, habit, routine. He's a habit and routine guy. Uh, also, how do you stay connected? How do you take the temperature in a locker room? When you have, you know, 80 to 100 other people that you have to consider. Like he talks about that leadership council. That's interesting. And his team captains. And uh, also, that look, they would be shocked if it's not Bo Nix. And the paranoia of coaches. I've seen some things uh, where coaches are like, nobody in the stadium. We're sweeping it. Drones. Any drones up there? Like we're just in an era, and maybe the Patriots did that to us, where everybody is so paranoid. I want you to leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. Great interview with Kyle Whittingham. Hey, if you missed it, part of it and you want to catch it, grab it on the podcast, the bald-faced truth uh, radio show podcast. Or if you heard it and you want to share it with a fellow fan who needs to hear it, you can share it. It'll uh, We podcast this stuff in real time, so it'll be up shortly. Uh, leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Good talk with Kyle Whittingham. You caught in there that he's expecting Bo Nix at quarterback. I also like, look, I asked him uh, at the end of that segment, you got a question for me, and, you know, I'm, I'm peppering him with questions. Anna's popped into the studio. Anna, if you have a question for me, you can ask. Steven, Peter, anybody got a question? Like, you know, I asked. Kyle Whittingham, all the questions. I always got questions for you. Okay, fire Does away. That make me a good employee or a bad? I don't know. I don't know. I'm always, questioning, I'm always questioning you. That's uh, good. I think it's good. Uh, no, but somebody has <laughs> to, to go to uh, Coach Whittingham's point about how they expect Bo Nix. Uh, I wanted to know if you have caught what uh, Chris Hudson had said. The Ducks wide receiver. You know, he uh, he's been interviewed after practice. He kind of made it out like Ty Thompson's gonna play. He can't wait to see him on the field. Uh, and then also he brought up the fact of. You know, he, it was part of the game plan to basically fake that injury in the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, I just want to know what you think about that and uh, if there's any validity to it because usually you're locked into these type of things. I want to uh, I'll play the clip. I'll play the, play the audio clip. I've watched the video, and the video, by the way, uh, comes from Matt Prem, who comes on the show all the time, 24-7 sports, duck territory, covers the team. Um, and I think context matters here, but I'm going to let you hear Chris Hudson's remarks about Bo Nix he was asked, well, I'll let the question go. Uh, we're very confident. They both are two good, great quarterbacks. Uh, obviously, Bo is down, so we got it's the next man up. But, you know, 
we got coming. They go go in like you know, like they been there before, and we, we all trust them. We trust both of them. What, what is it about time in particular that kind of exudes confidence? Uh, you know, he's good decision making. Um, he has a great arm. Uh, you know, he could extend plays, and um, and he's learned a lot from both. So he kind of took his game to the next level also. So you know. Ty is a good player. He's a great player, great quarterback, very smart. And, you know, can't wait to see him out there and be ready to go. There's Chris Hudson. He was asked uh, how much confidence he has in the Oregon quarterback situation. It sounds like Chris Hudson is saying that it's Ty Thompson's time. Now, <laughs> all right, I'm a little reluctant to just go with that as, hey, Bo's out. Like, Consider it. Take it under advisement. It's part of the puzzle. It is also possible that Oregon has instructed a player or two to let go that Bo Nix isn't going to play, and so that Utah suddenly goes, all right, we got to prepare for Ty Thompson. So it's possible Dan Lanning, who is on tomorrow's show, and I'll ask him directly, who's going to start at quarterback? Um, he's on tomorrow at 4.15. Be here. I will ask him directly. Like, no bones, no mystery. Who's going to start? Um, but it's possible Chris Hudson let it slip. It's also possible that he's trying to give Ty Thompson a vote of confidence. And I also, I also think that there was something to the way Hudson talked. Like, you know, was he talking about, you know, Bo Nix is really out, or Bo Nix went down, and then Ty Thompson came in? Like, it, it. I, I am reluctant to go all the way. Anna, you're laughing. Why? I'm laughing because, you know, you and I have both interviewed our fair share of people in general. Yeah. But um, in particular, you know, I, I guess for me, I still think of these guys as kids They're a kids, little bit. Yeah. Maybe I'm too generous in that or maybe it's not responsible of me to say that. But, like, I'm not going to pin, you know, whether or not Bo Nix is going to be starting this Saturday on, you know, something that that player is offering up in an interview. I'm just not. There's also a possibility that Ty Thompson's getting all the reps. You know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday sure. at practice. Yeah. And that Bo Nix, you know, and Chris Hudson is basically saying, you know, it's good to see Ty Thompson out there. What did you read it, Stephen? You read it as definitively Bo Nix is out. No, not definitively, but I will say he said it very, um, like, nonchalant. Like, it was, like, he didn't think about it, right? And yep. so for me, I take that as, okay, there is something up with it that they are expecting Bo or uh, Ty Thompson to play because he wasn't thinking. He was just talking. It was almost like the camera wasn't there and he was just talking to a buddy. And it almost sounded like he slipped out. So I you know, I do take away something from it. It's not definitive, but I think he was hinting that Ty Thompson is going to be starting and you know probably wasn't supposed to be doing that. Also, my dreams were hinting that. That, that too. Ty Thompson's going to start. So I told them about my dream, Anna. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. He threw a, he Glad threw, that's a it was discussion. a, it was well, a, I got a question for Anna. Yeah. How does Anna feel about you dreaming about <laughs> Bo Nix and Ty Thompson? It actually might have been a pass to Chris Hudson, to be honest. <laughs> From from Ty Thompson. You know what the 65 to 75 yards. When he told me that today, the first thing I said to him was, are you going to say that on the radio? Are you going to sound like a it, wackadoo? It just, it, here's the thing that's going to be wacky. When, when, it, it when it happens. It's the first play. It's the first play of the game. Oregon, ha it's the first time they have the ball. Uh -huh. It's their first offensive snap. Yeah. Thompson's on the field at quarterback. Mm -hmm. It's play action. And it's to the receiver that is far 
to his right yeah. outside the hashes, mm -hmm. and it's literally wide open for a touchdown, mm -hmm. at least 65 yards, maybe 75-yard touchdown pass. Uh, you know, I don't want to write it. I don't yeah. want to tweet it. Yeah, no, I don't want to be shouldn't. that guy. Yeah. But for listeners of this show, <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I'll be in the press box at Autzen Stadium. When Oregon has the ball, gonna I'm going to Nostradamus. I'm going to I'm looking for the uh looking for the 65 yarder down the right sideline to Chris Hudson or uh or Troy Franklin or somebody like that. Look, um I watched the video of it too during the commercial break. I want to say the kids being candid and that it's probably Ty Thompson at quarterback, but I'm not ruling out the possibility that Dan Lanning told Chris Hudson go out there and I want you to say next man in when they ask you and that that ty thompson looks great and because again what was the other thing that they asked chris hudson about they asked him about faking the injury at the end of the washington game he said it was part of the game plan on the last drive he faked an injury now for careful watchers of oregon football this season you will note this is not the first time that chris hudson has faked an injury he faked an injury the end of the second quarter of the Cal game, I noticed it. He, uh, as they were driving late in the second quarter, he went down. He kind of stood up, and then he realized, oh, crap, we don't have a timeout. And he fell back down, and they call an injury timeout. The officials do. It stops the clock. He did it at the end of the second quarter in the Cal game, and nobody noticed it. But I mentally filed that away. I didn't think anything big of it because it was Cal. But he did it again at the end of the Washington game on the second-to-last play of the game. Hudson pretended to get injured. He was asked about it by reporters today. A lot of people making a lot of that late game injury, Chris. you have any comment or explanation for all the people accusing uh, you of some stuff? Uh, yeah, it was just a part of the game plan. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't none too special, but I'm all right, though. I'm all right. <laughs> it wasn't anything special, you know. It's, it's usual. Is it poor form to fake an injury? I, I kind of feel like, I mean, gosh, isn't there something called unsportsmanlike conduct? There's a different call, right? I just, I mean, what what is this? It seems odd to me. Is this typical? Like, is this borrowed from the NFL or something? No. Explain this to me. Well, back in the Chip Kelly era when Oregon played fast, other teams on defense would do it oh. to slow down Oregon. Okay. They would have a defensive lineman fake an injury. I think it's really interesting that one of the assistant coaches that was most accused of doing it during the Chip Kelly era was Tosh Lapoy, who's now on Oregon staff. Hmm. So I kind of feel like this is, hey, it's, it's within the rules. You can't really give a lie detector test. You can't tell if you're an official if somebody's really faking an injury. It's a really hard thing to discern. Like, is this football or soccer? Is this football or uh, football? Yeah, exactly. Peter, yes. you tell me. Is this poor form, Stephen? Is this poor form? It is. I don't like it. I mean, I think you hit it right on the head, though. You can't necessarily prove if someone's faking, but I, it, it is unsportsmanlike uh, conduct by definition. It's not true, honest competition. Like, you think back, remember Jason Kidd as the head coach when he, he's like, bump into me, bump into me, and he spills his drink? It's yes. maybe not as extreme as that, but you look at that and you just go, come on, just play the game. Yeah, I agree. Like it's just it is poor form. I think it is poor form to fake it and do like that, but you know, at the same time the Ducks, especially last game, they needed the timeout. So it was a good choice by them, but <laughs> I just think there's a like I don't if they know. win the game, is this is this a massive national huge, story? Huge yeah. deal. Huge deal. Yeah. Especially if this audio came out and the Ducks had won. I think it's just poor form. 
Um, you know, again, like, you know, I was talking with Nick Cody on Twitter about it. He's like, well, what are they going to do? It's like, well, they can't do anything. There's no rules against it, really. Like, you can't prove it. But at the same time, it's just like the, the ethics of sports, like, we would we want to believe in better than that. I don't I don't think the Washington fans, and by the way, there's nobody more fired up about this than Softy. KJR. He's texted me multiple times. He's yeah, after the game. He texted me. He texted me today on the subject. He wants me to ask Dan Lanning about it. I I did inquire with the Pac-12 conference to ask would there be any kind of sanctions. Pac-12 is crickets on that. Like I don't think they want to get into like accusing somebody of faking an injury. But now that Chris Hudson has pretty much admitted that it was the game plan, I'm kind of putting these two things together. Him letting slip on Bo Nix, him admitting the game plan. I got a feeling Chris Hudson doesn't have a filter. Well, because the thing is, is like, <laughs> what, if, what if the worst thing is going to happen? We already hate Pac-12 refs. If Pac-12 refs, you know, they come out and they say, "Oh, you faked an injury," but then the guy was actually injured. Yeah. Like everyone is going to crush those Pac-12 refs even more than we already do. Like that's the problem that it has with this. You can't get into that game if you are a conference, and so you have to. I think what the Pac-12 should do is gently tell Oregon, hey, don't do that. It's a bad look. I mean, it's embarrassing enough. Like, the Washington fans are all up in arms with it. You know, my insurance agent is a Washington fan. He texted me today. He's like, I got to know what you think about that. I'm like, you won the game. Be happy that your team won the game. But I get it. Like, if let's say Oregon stops the clock. Like, the clock stopped. And by the way, Hudson didn't have to do that. The clock was stopped anyway because it was a first down. So I also thought that was kind of silly that he did it because now he has to come out of the game and he is a valuable player that Oregon could potentially use in a situation. So I thought it was interesting that he went down and then they had to uh, stop the clock. But but I if Oregon wins the game, there is a you know there's a massive story like the governor in Washington's probably weighing in on this. <laughs> Anna, do you have a question for me? Kyle Whittingham, had, you know, I gave him an opportunity to ask a question. He said no. He laughed, but he said no. You have a question you want to pepper uh, me with? Go ahead. Anything you, you need to get off your chest? Do you know what the seven habits of highly effective people are? Because I'm really curious about that. Did you catch? Did you guys catch that? That when I asked Kyle Whittingham that, that it's written. The book is written by the grandfather of Britton Covey, one of his former players. <laughs> Like, it's that's how old Kyle Whittingham is. He's like, oh, you know, I haven't just read the book. I coached that guy's grandkid, you know? Yeah, Franklin Covey. Um, put, put first things first. That's mm -hmm. one of the habits. Be proactive. Be yep. proactive. Uh, think win-win. I'm always thinking win-win. Uh, sharpen the saw. That's habit number seven. You're going. You're going out of order here. Yeah, I don't. I they don't, might be in order. For you asked me if I know any of them. You didn't ask me to like give each one. <laughs> Begin with the end in mind. I like that one. Okay. Uh huh. Begin with the end in mind. Yeah. I, I think. Okay. I think Kyle Whittingham begins with the end in mind, mm -hmm. because I think this season is gamed at playing the best football in November. He has a uncanny ability to kind of get his team in the right place at the right time of the season. I think it's really interesting. I don't think it's accidental that they were playing lights out at the end of last year and Oregon was kind of waning. And here we are again. Oregon feels like it's waning a little bit, and here comes Kyle Whittingham in the Utes. Like, is you know, you want to play Utah in, in October. You don't want to play Utah in November. And you especially don't want to play Utah at Utah in November. Uh, but, you know, do you have habits, Anna? Do you have any of these, like... 
Oh, yeah, I have lots of habits. None of them are particularly effective, <laughs> you know. Um, I think it's funny because I think we own this book. It's on our bookshelf, but I don't think either of us have actually read it. I read the cover. Yeah, yeah. Powerful lessons. Yeah. I like Habit 5, Seek First to Understand and Then Be Understood. I like that. That's, uh, that's a little too uh, esoteric for me. Yeah. I, I think Think Win-Win is more of a habit that I like because, <laughs> hey, it, it takes no brains at all. Yeah. To come up with a solution that works for just you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think that way. There's a whole bunch of people in business, in life, in football, mm -hmm. in radio, and even in your own households who think about, hey, this is a good solution because it works for me. It takes real brains. My dad told me this. He says it takes brains to come up with a solution that works for everybody. It's the same as this uh, Covey guy. Mm -hmm. Think win-win. Mm -hmm. You know? It's not about being nice. It's about, like, being collaborative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Any yes. other questions, Peter? Anybody got a question? Uh, I mean, can it be anything? Anything. Fire away, man. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess I have a, a two-parter. What is the Ooh. your uh, favorite Beatles album that is not Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band? And second, are you a Lennon or a McCartney guy? I would be Lennon, and I oh, would man. only be Lennon because uh, I think when I think Beatles, I think him first, and I remember being a kid. And my mom had the album, the Meet the Beatles album yeah. that had their faces on the cover, 19, I'm going to say early 60s, mm -hmm. like 64, 65-ish. She had that album. She would put it on. And I just remember it was more about John Lennon kind of spitting lyrics at me than Paul McCartney doing anything. And, you know, I think if John Lennon had lived, that we'd be all, he would be the guy, would he not? Like we, Paul McCartney wouldn't have been Paul McCartney if John Lennon were still alive. Let's discuss that. Yeah, it's possible. I think John had the higher solo peaks, but he also kind of had the lowest valleys. But is that really a, a problem? Because he was <laughs> more about pushing now. the envelope as an artist and willing to take chances, where Paul's all about just crafting these, you know, admittedly great pop songs. But John yeah. really pushed the envelope. I think John Lennon was doing specials. I think he was taking big swings. You know, he was trying to. He was trying to win titles and i think mccartney was trying to win games how about that <laughs> i love that all right here we go on to the next segment if you have a question for me let it rip 503-417-7575 you can ask anna as well you got the bald face truth back to the bald face truth with john canzano on 750 the game Oregon Ducks football coach Dan Lanning will be on tomorrow's show in this hour, 4 o'clock hour. I want you here for it. I'll ask him who he is going to start at quarterback. Who knows if he'll answer or if he'll tell the truth. You got a question? You want to kick something around college football related, radio show related? You want to know my thoughts on whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich? Paper or plastic, mountains or beach? You can ask me at 503-417-7575. In the meantime... Anna, I got a question for you. I got a question for Steven, and I have a question for Peter. All right? In okay, that order. Bring it. In that order. Here we go. Anna, uh, people always ask me how you cope with having a sports radio show host, sports columnist as a husband. What is your life like amid all of that? Oh, wow. Uh, that's a big question. Um, I could answer that so many ways. Um, I, I don't know. I think I've learned a lot more about sports. I think... 
mostly the key skill to have as your wife is just flexibility because you know if you are the kind of person who really likes to know what your schedule is let's say around the holidays or weekends in general in the fall like it's really unpredictable in that way because um you know you just kind of don't know you go uh, where the story takes you you go to the games that are the most relevant and seeing what we've seen uh, in the pack 12 or whatever it is now um, seeing what we've seen that changes almost week by week with the wins and losses so it's kind of uh, that ability to roll with the punches and you know not not be too finicky about things changing almost on a daily basis. All right, so I geek out a little bit on kind of the media rights, Pac-12 front, and all that stuff. Yeah. Does that get old hearing about it? Because sometimes I look up on the radio show and I go, you know what, I know my listeners love sports, but I just don't know. Do they do they love this kind of stuff as much as I do? Are you asking me I'm that? asking you. Yeah, I'm asking you oh. what it's like when I go, you know what? Yeah. I can't believe uh -huh. that UCLA is surveying their athletes and they're only interviewing 111 athletes. They say it's a survey of 600. <laughs> that does dominate our conversation a lot, but I actually, <laughs> I guess that's where my background as a journalist probably comes in handy because I find mm -hmm. it very interesting and I'm always kind of asking you questions about it. Well, why, why this and why that? And, you know, I'm looking at a lot of the stuff that you write. Um, you know, before it, it goes to print. So, yeah, I, I, I'm actually interested in it. Um, I think there's a good balance because we don't always talk about sports. And the thing that people always ask me, which is funny, is they always go, well, isn't, like, isn't it lame because you probably just have, you know, ESPN on in your house, like, all the time or some mm. kind of sports game. And that's the irony is, like, I you don't. Like, you have a pretty healthy balance where you will watch the games that you need to watch, but it's not the kind of household. Like, in general, our household is not the kind of household where the TV is just on all the time in general, and it's definitely not always on sports. I mean, the weekends are a little bit different. I got a question now for Peter Sampson. Peter, um, we don't talk a lot of Blazers on this show, yeah. and I – but a part of it is I don't think people necessarily uh, want to hear me talk Blazers until it gets later in the year. Like I, I feel like when it gets when I get serious about the Blazers, that's when we talk about it. Does that frustrate you at all? Honestly, no. I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, everyone here in Portland specifically, and to, you know, a varying degree across, you know, the statewide footprint of this show, I mean, they're keyed into the Blazers. There's a million podcasts. There's a million different things that that talk about them and break down the minutia of every five-minute span of every game. Mm -hmm. But I don't blame you at all. I mean, you've you've been you've been here now, what, covering the team 20, 20 years, 21 years? Yeah, yeah so, uh, like, as, as optimistic as I am about them, John, it's November 16th. I totally get that maybe there's a little bit more of a show me that you want to see yeah I want to show me for it for real uh, all right Stephen I'm gonna to go to you now on my question for Stephen relates to his kids Stephen uh, I, I struggle with this because I have three daughters uh, I have one of them that's probably a little more tuned into football than the other two do you enjoy sitting with your kids and just watching a game or would you rather play with them or see them play uh, I think I'd rather see them play. I like to watch them play the most. Uh, you know, my kids, my oldest is finally starting to get into sports a little bit. He's eight, and so he's finally starting to recognize players. Uh, so I actually do enjoy watching 
uh, sport. He, they don't like to watch football. They like to watch basketball. So I enjoy that. And then my littlest, who's three, uh, I don't know why. We, he has a Beavers jersey, and he loves it. So he's like, yo, I'm on the Beavers. I'm going to be on the Beavers. So I think it's really cool. Uh, but I would much rather watch them play. I think it is really fun uh, to watch my kids actually go out and play sports and be competitive. I love that. I I I feel the same way. I got a the uh, eight year old plays volleyball later tonight, and I'm excited about going to see her play. Uh, Jeremy's in Multnomah Village has a question. Jeremy, go ahead. John, thanks for all you do for us. Appreciate. Hey, you. real real easy, quick question. Um, I haven't heard the answer yet, but I'm just curious why you switched your time slots. Uh, I don't get to listen to you as much as I used to, and I'll pop off to hear your answer. I appreciate that. Yeah, that was a station management decision. You know, I, I'm a creature of habit. I'll be honest with you. Like, there was part of me that liked being on middays. Uh, I had, you know, part of the reason why I liked being on middays had to do with the family life and the structure. But I also think I get it when they came to me and they said, hey, look, uh, you know, there's uh, potential for a bigger audience or more revenue in the afternoon drive. And, you know, the, the advertisers didn't complain, you know, going with it. So I think, you know, I, I have to at some level be a team player and go, hey, this is what, you know, the team wants to do. Let's go try it. Let's go do it. You know, and, and granted, I started this radio show in afternoon drive 17 years ago and then moved to middays a few years into it and then back to afternoon drive. So who knows what may hold. In the future, who knows what may happen in the future? Who knows? Like Peter Sampson and Stephen could be on an afternoon drive, and I could be back in middays. Who knows? But I do miss my midday people, and I hope they are either listening live or they are catching the podcast. I I really do because, uh, you know, I, I know that there are a whole bunch of delivery drivers and people who are in rhythm who I heard from immediately who said, I don't like it. I can't get you. Who is, you know, what show is this that I'm listening to? You're not there where you're supposed to be. But I'm also not going to do six hours of radio. I'm not going to be on from noon to six. It's not going to happen. So let's get that out of everybody's head. All right. Uh, leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth much more ahead. Plus, in the 5 o'clock hour, Jonathan Smith will be joining us. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. When Peter asked me about the Beatles earlier, I, uh, it's out of my comfort zone. You know that. Uh-huh. I'm not a big music talker person. I know what I like when it comes to music. I know what, you know what appeals to me. I even have a playlist on my phone that is titled Memorial. It's supposed to be so you don't have to go looking for songs, Anna, when I die. Yeah, you'll how just morbid be, is that? You'll be able to just cue them right up. <laughs> what a gift that is. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Guys, back me up. Is that not a gift? Yeah, I'm with John on this one. Uh, I mean, just make it easier for you, right? Like, do you have to go about and think about, oh, what songs? He's got it already well, for you. Yeah, it I've got one. It's literally listed as John's Memorial Playlist. I have two files. One's called Memorial and one's called JC Memorial. I kind of put songs in one of the folder. They're like tester songs. Oh, there's two and playlists? Then I, and, we need to have this discussion, And then apparently. I decide whether or not... You could draw from either... Both. Okay. You, you could draw from both or either. But yeah. I... Uh, it's like an A side and a B yeah, side of a kinda. cassette. But think about all the things you have to think about if, you know, I passed away. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to worry about a whole bunch of things. One thing you won't have to worry about is... 
where's the playlist for the memorial? Yeah. It's right there on my phone. Well, exactly. it isn't that the most important thing? Like, we want to honor the dead. Like, that's what he wants. <laughs> right? Like, he wants he wants yeah. that music, so let's honor him and play the music he likes. Well, and you've already said, like, you do not want this kind of somber yeah, no. service. Uh-uh. You want to party, it's right? Just, no, it party. I don't want people to be too party-ish. Okay. Okay, I don't want it to be like, oh, he's dead. Keg stand. <laughs> no. <laughs> Kind of a moderate, kind of a upbeat, Uh celebration of life type thing. Okay. I don't want anybody crying, okay? If you, you could cry if you want, but I don't need that, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want, I don't want too much exuberance. Like, I don't need Neil Olshay over there doing cartwheels. I don't, I don't need like, like, uh, you know, Mike Bellotti going, hey, I outlived him. You know, I don't need any of this stuff. I would invite Neil Olshay. No, but I just think, uh, I think we need to have like kind of an upbeat, like on a scale of, like if a tempo is one to a hundred, with one being like just, you know, uh, Old Man River. I'm uncomfortable talking about this. Okay, let me just, no, this is really important to me. This is, this is stuff that is important to me. I'm glad that we're having this conversation publicly so listeners you can keep me accountable like if you if there there is a public service we can all agree that this is what he wanted right well uh, what i what i want people to think about is their own service and their own family yeah so i like i don't want this to be the vibe old man river that old man river he must know some but don't say nothing, he just keeps rolling, he keeps on rolling along. I don't want that. So invite that guy no. to be the guest That performer. guy's a former player. I also don't want this vibe. You know? Don't worry. I don't want, it it can't be like flowers and, you know? Yeah. This is a medley, actually, that I put together once upon a time in 2009. Glaciers were having some injury problems. We don't want, we don't want that vibe. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it's something in between. It's okay. more like Stevie Wonder, yeah. you are the, you know, you are the sunshine of my life, uh-huh. you are, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's kind of like, it's upbeat, but classy. Uh-huh. Scale of one to a hundred. Yeah. Somewhere in the 70s. Peter, you said you have a playlist, too. What, what's on your playlist? Uh, Kind of similar. Uh, I guess if you're talking, like, we're pushing the tempo, but we're not on a full, fast break. You just, it's something, a little positive, songs I really, uh, really yeah. like that I hope will remind people of me, but not, yeah. not too much of a downer. Did you create this playlist after John talked extensively about his, or was this something you already had? No, I mean it was after I went to a, an unexpected funeral, and everyone it was it was a, a surprise. The person was not very old, and it was just kind of, "Ooh, this can happen to anybody at any time." I should probably uh, handle some business. I think uh, that I, I'm not afraid to die. I told yeah. your mom that the other day. Yeah, she asked me. She also is not. She afraid said, to "Well, die. she was bragging." She said, "I'm not afraid to die." Yeah. I said, "I'm not either." I looked her right in the eyes. <laughs> but I just think uh, I'm not ready to go. Yeah, okay? good. If anyone's good. asking, yeah, I'm good. not ready to go, yeah. but 
Uh, you're not going to have to worry about my memorial playlist. Okay. All right. Dave's in Kaiser. He has a more important question to ask. Dave, go ahead. John, I want you to do me a favor. Okay. I want you to ask your insurance guy if he was okay with faking injuries during the Chip Kelly era <laughs> when the Huskies played the Ducks. Okay. All right. And I like that. I would like to know his answer. Maybe you could do that tomorrow. We'll I'll do see. that. I'll and do it one, right now. Okay. One more quick thing, John. I am a long-suffering Vikings fan, so if you don't mind, I'm going to give a shout-out to my Minnesota Vikings. Go Vikings. Thanks, John. You guys look pretty good this year. Vikings are sitting uh, kind of pretty, uh, you know. Although you, you know, you you barely got by the Bills and the Commanders in the last two weeks. Patriots at Vikings this week. Uh, he raises a good point, you know. Like if you're going to be, I and I don't blame people for being upset. I think the problem with Chris Hudson faking the injury at the end of the Washington game is, is he's not a good faker. <laughs> That's part of the problem. <laughs> You've got to have a legit – I heard other people who said, oh, the Oregon center, Alex Forsyth, he was complaining about his shoulder at the end of the game. He was – you could tell during the whole game his shoulder was bothering him. Mm-hmm. He, I saw him several times, and I pay attention to that kid because I know that kid. Yeah. And I saw him several times sort of rolling his arm like he was uncomfortable with something in his shoulder joint. Right. And so when he went down later in the game, I thought, uh, he's really hurt. Yeah, because I saw it. Like, so Chris Hudson needs to foreshadow the injury yeah. a little bit. He needs some. He needs some acting skills. Yeah, what he needs yeah. to do is on a reception, like in the second quarter, uh-huh. he needs to kind of come up a half lame, kind of like stretch <laughs> out his leg in front of the TV cameras, and then jog off like he's okay. And then later in the game, when he goes down, it's not as evident. Okay, you got to foreshadow the injury. Can't believe we're having this. Is this like discussion. this is like you know I was an English lit major, man. Like, when a rose shows up early in the book, there's a reason that red rose showed up. Look out. It's going to matter later, okay? Like, you got to do that. You're mm-hmm. faking your injuries. I could teach these guys a few things. Mm-hmm. Or they should just watch MLS games. Right. Right. Exactly. Or, or James Harden. How about that? James Harden. Who's the biggest faker in sports? Mm. Oh, man. Um, Who's the biggest faker? I think it's Harden. Currently? He's a fake. I mean, technically, it's Ben Simmons, but <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Ben Simmons, can... any soccer player, James Harden, Ben Simmons, and Chris Hudson, those well, are your fakers. According to LeBron, he needs to learn how to flop. Okay. He had a quote the other day that said, "I need, to, I need to learn how to flop." Yeah, he's never done that because he's not getting any calls. Yeah, he wasn't getting calls. I feel bad for LeBron. Why? I don't yeah, think why? it should. It, yeah, I think well, it's really why. I think he's he's a better player. Then how this is going to end for him? It's it's ending ugly. It you know I mean I don't need him to win a championship, but Carl Malone got to go around and sit on rocking chairs in the middle of the court and do you know do a whole farewell tour, and other guys got gifts on their way out. LeBron on his way out, he's getting a migraine. He's hanging out with a bunch of losers. You know he's going to get to play with his son though. That's what he really wants. I guess. Well, there you have it. Five o'clock hour. The five at five is coming up. Jonathan Smith is the coach at Oregon State. He'll chill join us. We'll talk to him about their upcoming game against Arizona State. Leave it here. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. The show gets out of hand occasionally. Jonathan Smith will be 
answering the questions later in the show. I'll let him ask a question, too. Why not? That's the theme of the day on today's show. Seven habits of highly effective people. I didn't know Kyle Whittingham was going to tell us. Oh, yeah, you know, I not only have read that book, uh, I coached uh, that guy's grandson, written Covey. Wonder if that guy's a donor. We're in the happy hour, the five o'clock hour. It will be upbeat. It will be fast moving. I'm glad that you're here for it. Tomorrow, I want to preview some of the guests on tomorrow's show. Tomorrow's going to be awesome. Kelly Graves, University of Oregon women's basketball coach, will be joining us in the three o'clock hour. Disco Dan Lanning. Is it disrespectful for me to say Disco Danny? Daniel Lanning will be joining us tomorrow in the 4 o'clock hour, 4.15 to be precise. We'll also talk to Josh Furlong of KSL in Salt Lake City. He'll be joining us. Friday show, John Robinson, former USC coach. And we'll go to Salt Lake City where Josh Newman of the Salt Lake Tribune will be joining us. And who knows what else will happen on Friday. We got a lot of irons in the fire, but that's where we are today. We get big guests. I'm telling you, like, you know, I think we get the guests. Like, when we have a week where we have Jack Coletto on and we have Mike Parker on and Kyle Whittingham on and Jonathan Smith on and Danny Daniel Lanning on. I can keep wanting to say Dan, Disco Danny. And we have Kelly Graves and John Robinson with his national championships on the show. Uh, when we have a week like that, come on. Come on. Let's be real. We are getting the guests here, and it's not home of the Ducks although we talk ducks and we bring Dan Lanning on. It's not home of the Beavers, although we will talk about the Beavers and we'll bring Jonathan Smith on. It's not home of the Utah Utes, for crying out loud, but Kyle Whittingham is on the show. I reached out to Arizona State. I said, hey, should we get that interim coach of yours on? And you know what? They weren't trying to be mean. They were like, you know, and I said, okay, never mind, <laughs> never mind. Uh, and that's how I found out the Sun Bowl reps are going to be at the Oregon State-Arizona State game. So they're not going to see ASU. They're going for the cheesecake, and they're going to, to enjoy the nice Arizona weather. The people in El Paso are getting out to Scottsdale and uh, taking a break. Guys, we need to form a bowl game. We need to get some gold jackets. We need to go eat some cheesecake and tour around the Pac-12 footprint saying, well, we may invite you to the bowl game or not. We could, we could start a bowl game, the BFT Bowl. We can hold that game I don't know where. Providence Park, if they'll let us play a football game there. Probably squeeze us out of there, too, Timbers would. But let's get to the 5 at 5. It is the five biggest, baddest stories in the land, and we got them. The 5 at 5. Well, David Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. I'd never get used to that. 17 years. David Shaw, the Stanford coach was asked a bold question in his news conference today. A young reporter from the Bay Area News Group asked him, did he expect to be back next season? Stanford has struggled under David Shaw this season and the last couple of seasons. Um, I don't think Bernard Muir would get rid of David Shaw, but he did issue a statement. Statement for the uh, from the Stanford athletic director is as follows. Quote, we will continue to review all aspects of our football program. We do not expect to make any significant changes prior to the conclusion of the season." End quote. Now, in most cases, you would read this as the dreaded vote of confidence. 
but anybody who knows the Stanford athletic director, Bernard Muir, understands that he's not here to be a wrecking ball. He's going to be very patient. We do not expect to make any significant changes prior to the conclusion of the season would normally be the beginning of the end. But in David Shaw's case, it probably feels like Stanford will make a recommendation that he changes coordinators, make a recommendation that he potentially uh, makes some changes to assistant coaches and you know, but here's the here's the wild card in this whole thing. Mir and Shaw are close. I don't think he would make a move on David Shaw, but I think that there could be some kind of internal shakeup on Stanford staff. Certainly Stanford is at a disadvantage when it comes to the transfer portal. You heard Kyle Whittingham and I talking about it earlier in the show. Nearly half of the quarterbacks in major college football this season are transfers. That's wild to me. Nine of the 12 starters last weekend in the Pac-12 conference were transfers. If Ty Thompson starts, it'll be eight this week. Or maybe it will be nine, and it'll be Bo Nix. But keep an eye on it. That's number one in our five at five. Number two, how about the Miami Marlins and Sandy Alcantara? 228 and two-thirds innings pitched. And, oh, by the way, he gets the National League Cy Young Award. He won it. He was uh, the first unanimous winner in the National League since Clayton Kershaw did it in 2014. He swept it. All 30 first-place votes. He beat out uh, uh, a bunch of other pitchers, including Braves left-hander. Sorry, uh, Adam, or excuse me, Peter. Uh, You know, Max Fried didn't get it. Uh, but he's the first Cy Young Award winner in Marlins history and basically a unicorn. 228 and two-thirds innings, the most innings since David Price threw 230 six years ago. Six complete games. By the way, his six complete games are more than any other team in baseball. Fantastic season for Sandy. By the way, he's the second Sandy to win the Cy Young Award winner. Anybody know the first? Kofax. Sandy Kofax. There you go. That's number two. Number three in the five at five. There's some sources telling ESPN that Kyrie Irving could rejoin the Nets as soon as Sunday. He's nearing completion on the process that the Nets laid out for him to return to play. They play the Grizzlies on Sunday at the Barclays Center. He'll miss his eighth consecutive game tomorrow night in Portland, but he's closing in on the end of his suspension nearly two weeks ago. He's continuing his journey of dialogue and education, according to the National Basketball Players Association. There it is. Uh, You know, Kyrie is carrying out a minimum five-game suspension without pay. He's apologized on Instagram. He's met with the Nets owner. He's met with the commissioner. Apparently, he's on his way back. It's kind of a big deal in Brooklyn. I'm kind of tired of talking about Kyrie. Let's talk about something else. How about uh, our fourth biggest thing? All the ACC teams are going to honor the Virginia shooting victims with their helmet decals this weekend. It's a wild show of solidarity. It's powerful stuff. But the ACC announced today that a league-wide initiative began this week in the wake of the shooting death of three Cavaliers football players. 
Included among the initiatives are the special helmet decals that were designed for the uh, to commemorate and honor those three players. A moment of silence will be observed at all of the ACC home football games, and every home team will have field signage that says UVA strong in a graphic produced by the league office. Sad stuff in Virginia. And uh, nice to see the ACC thinking as a team. Finally, uh, the Tennessee Titans have ruled out the idea that they're going to start uh, a bunch of players on, on Thursday night. That's tomorrow night. But they're going to be without their center, Ben Jones. They'll be without their safety, Imani Hooker. They'll be, out with, they'll be without their kicker, Randy Bullock. And their outside linebacker, Bud Dupree, is not going to play. Also, Lonnie Johnson, hamstring injury, out. Titans are banged up, uh, you know, after their win over the Denver Broncos. Titans coach Mike Vrabel said he may play this week. No, he didn't say that. He just said, hey, look, they're going to have to find a way. They're going to have to find a way. It's that point of the NFL season. You got people with shoulders and knees and hips and calves and concussions and, you know, Tennessee just trying to get through it at this point. That is our five at five, five biggest things going on in uh, sports, guys. Let's rip through those things. Um, injuries. How big of a how big of an excuse can you make an injury at this point of a college football season or NFL season, or are you just going to be met with the traditional? Hey, that's just everybody's dealing with injuries. I think you just you're, you have to deal with it, right? I, all these coaches can go through the number of injuries that they have. So you know, especially in the NFL, like it is, especially next man up, like you're getting paid. That's your job. Uh, those backups need to be ready. So you know, for Tennessee, uh, you know, it's going to be tough. But luckily, they're playing the Packers, who aren't very good either. So they still got a shot. I mentioned uh, Alcantara winning the Cy Young for the Marlins in the National League. Um, it's Justin Verlander with his third Cy Young of his career. More impressive what Verlander did in helping the Astros get a world championship or, uh, uh, you know, Sandy Alcantara, you know, pitching all those complete games and throwing so many innings for the Marlins. What's more impressive in your mind? To me, uh, even though I'm a huge Justin Verlander guy and I'm amazed that he's still this good at this age, I think throwing six complete games in 2022, I mean, that's the equivalent. That's like Walter Johnson throwing 30 in a single season. You know what I mean? So, I mean, credit to the Marlins staff for actually allowing him to go the distance because I know, look, pitch counts matter, but these guys... They're capable of doing more than what they're limited to and getting every first place vote. Look, he should have won. I am surprised that Freed didn't get a single first place vote, but props to him. What a great year. Cy Young had 749 complete games, most of all time. That's going to be untouchable. Nobody's breaking that. Now, I'm looking for an active player that's above 200. It's not happening. Like Tom Seaver threw 231. Like we're we're just in a different era of baseball with middle relievers and, uh, you know, people looking at pitch counts. It's not going to happen. Uh, i got to ask you, Stephen, Kyrie Irving. Um, all right, so it's going to be a story when he comes back on Sunday. I'm kind of glad it didn't happen for tomorrow night's game in Portland because then it becomes a circus here in Portland. But, you know, after the Sunday thing, does Kyrie go quiet or is it just a matter of time before he's back in the news cycle demanding a trade or doing something stupid? Uh, I think it'll be a little bit, and then he'll be do something stupid or say something stupid. He'll be back in the news cycle. Like he just he just can't get away from it. And then Brooklyn Nets team, man, they are a circus. You know, Kevin Durant's coming out calling out players by name, uh, who he's starting with. 
it's just a bad situation there. But I think for the you know the present, you know, the first maybe week or two afterwards, Kyrie won't say anything. But as it gets more and more frustrating, the Nets keep losing games. Uh, yeah, I, I expect him to say something bad. By the way, the active major league record right now, the record holder among active players for complete games, Adam Wainwright has 28. Oh, man. Trails Cy Young by 721. Is that all? <laughs> so he just needs to pitch for about 900 more years? Yep. He'll get there. He, <laughs> it's long enough. Um, it's funny, Alcantara's got nine. He's 13th among active players. He's about a season away from being uh, in the top five. So there you go. Um, Verlander has 26. It's not bad. It's second among active players. So that, that'll be fun. Uh, what about you, Peter, and Kyrie? Uh, how long before he's in trouble again? Uh, I mean, define trouble. But, but by the end of this year, he will miss a game for something that is not an injury. And whether that's he's asked not to play or he steps away due to handling his personal business, whatever that means, this season he will miss additional time for something. We're going to play Punch and Audio coming up. After that, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, will be joining us at 5.30. Once you here for it. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You can read me exclusively now at johnconzano.com. I wrote today about UCLA and the air quotes here. Survey that they put out for their athletes. Uh, uh, if you uh, grab a free subscription or grab a paid subscription, whatever works for you, works for me, you will get that delivered to your email inbox the minute that I finish writing. The minute I post it, boom, you get it. So you get it first. You get it at your leisure where you can read it. Go to johnconzano.com if you want to check that out. Jonathan Smith's coming up in about 10 minutes, the Oregon State football coach. In the meantime, we're going to play some Punch It Audio. We have the best sound from all around. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Mike Parker. Mike Parker, uh, you know, we talked about the Pac-12 conference, he's fired up about this. Voice of the Beavers says the national guys don't get it. That the Pac-12 conference is a good conference. It's good. It's too good to be called mediocre. Here's Parker punching. The greatness of the conference is that part of the reason we don't get people as often through is it's too hard to navigate because it's too deep. It's too good. It's not terribly mediocre. I mean, the lack of more appearances in the CFP does not necessarily speak to the mediocrity of the product. Mediocrity of the product? You have six teams in the top 25 of the latest college football playoff rankings. USC in the top seven. That's not a bad conference. Dan Lanning was asked by reporters if he watched last year's Utah-Oregon games. He was at Wednesday's practice punch it. Not so much about the frustration piece. We certainly studied those last year um, and really more so even off in, in off-season prep, you know, because it's a new team and they've had a lot of games this season. Um, but certainly uh, watched those in the off-season and, and uh, a little bit this week. Watched him, not saying a whole bunch. Interested to talk to Dan Lanning tomorrow. He's on the show here tomorrow and find out kind of where he is mentally on riding the ship 
defensively, what can they do to get better? We'll talk about that with Dan Lanning on tomorrow's show. Jimmy Johnson was on first take talking about the Dallas Cowboys. They've lost their mojo. Can they get it back? Here's Jimmy. Punch it. When is the last time in your estimation the Cowboys have been entitled to have swagger? Well, swagger is winning. And so they've won a little, but they haven't won great. Uh, So... You know, until you win and put a ring on your finger, I don't know that you can have swagger. Mm. You see what I'm saying? See, see and I got I a bunch you. of rings, Stephen A. That's why I love. You. <laughs> I got a that's bunch of rings. You. That's why I love you. Bunch <laughs> of rings, a lot of swagger. It's true. The Cowboys have lost their way. The Cowboys don't have that it factor that they had once upon a time that they've had for so long. And I think the NFL's not better because of it. When the Dallas Cowboys are good, when the Dallas Cowboys are not blowing leads, the NFL's better. It's kind of like the Yankees. You know, at least the Yankees had Aaron Judge and they made the postseason. The Dallas Cowboys have not delivered for the NFL. Rory McIlroy talks about the PGA Tour in a lawsuit against LIV. He's calling out Greg Norman. This is interesting. Here's McElroy basically saying Greg Norman's got to go. Punch it. There's a few things that I would like to see on the live side that needs to happen. I think Greg needs to go. I think he needs to just exit stage left. And look, he's, he's made his mark. But I think now is the right time to, to sort of say, look, you've, you know, you've got this thing off the ground. But no one's going to talk and, unless, you know, there's an adult in the room that can actually try to mend fences um, and if those two things happen then things can things can happen but right now um, it's a stalemate because it there can't be any other way stalemate in part because the personalities don't work Greg Norman has been gaslighting people on the tour don't like him he's inflammatory he's problematic I don't blame McElroy for saying he's got to go because that personality has been at the center of so much of what has uh, transpired between those two entities. If you really want these things to get fixed, then Greg Norman cannot be in the center of this discussion, and I think McElroy has that right. Chris Hudson, wide receiver at Oregon. Did he slip when he was asked about the possibility of Ty Thompson playing quarterback, Bo Nix playing quarterback. Listen to what Chris Hudson said at practice today, this courtesy of 24-7 Sports and Matt Prem. Uh, we're very confident. They both are two good, great quarterbacks. Uh, obviously, Bo is down, so we got to the next man up. But, you know, we got to come in. They're going to go in like, you know, like they've been there before, and we, we all trust them. We trust both of them. What, what is it about Ty in particular that kind of exudes confidence? Uh, you know, he's good decision-making. Um, he has a great arm. Uh, you know, he could extend plays. And um, and he's learned a lot from Bo, so he kind of took his game to the next level also. So, you know, Ty is a good player. He's a great player, great quarterback, very smart. And, you know, can't wait to see him out there and be ready to go. Uh, it sounds a lot like Chris Hudson is signaling that Bo Nix won't be on the field in uniform. 
Or is it gamesmanship? We won't find out till Saturday, or we may find out tomorrow when Dan Lanning joins us on this show at, uh, what is it, 4.15 tomorrow. Want you here for that. That's Punchin' Audio. It's the best sound from all around. Hey, John, how much does it matter if Bo Nix is out? I think it matters. I mean, I think it makes Oregon's path to victory a lot easier. Um, if we're being honest, you know, look, Ty Thompson comes with some questions. And, uh, look, we already watched Chance Nolan have a hard time against Utah's defense. He had, uh, you know, two interceptions early. He had a pick six. Um, you know, it was not fun to watch Oregon's Oregon State's quarterbacks play against that Utah defense. They struggled. Now an Oregon uh, offense with a backup quarterback against that defense, I think Morgan Scally does a nice job of disguising coverages, getting pressure on the quarterback. It's why I keep coming back to the Oregon run game. If Oregon can run the football, they're at home running the football, they'll be in the game against Utah. I had people, good friends of mine who cover this conference, who think it's a 50-50 proposition with Utah and Oregon if Bo Nix is healthy. If it's a 50-50 proposition with a healthy Bo Nix, maybe it's a 35-65 or a 40-60 proposition for Oregon with Ty Thompson. But if you run the football and you lean into that home field and they play better defense, uh, let's face it, Utah's offense is not as dynamic as Washington, but I think Utah will score about 31 points in that game. We'll talk about our picks on tomorrow's show. We'll give our picks, but can Oregon get to 35 with Ty Thompson and a Kenny Dillingham offense? That is the question. Jonathan Smith is coming up next, Oregon State football coach. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. It's been a big radio show. Kyle Whittingham joined us in the 4 o'clock hour. Jonathan Smith uh, coming up here in a moment. Dan Lanning on tomorrow's show. John Robinson, longtime USC coach. I've been exchanging messages with him. He's like 95. I've been exchanging messages with him. He is supposed to be on Friday's show. That's going to be a real treat. Joining us now, Jonathan Smith. How about John Robinson coming on the show? Yeah, man, I guess a legend. Now, shoot, that's back to when I was growing up in Southern California, head coach of the the Trojans, the Rams, that's big time. I remember when Charles White was in the backfield. That's kind of like my childhood. Like, I might be too – I'm older than you, I think, so I, that might be too young for you. Who was in the backfield when you were watching USC? Yeah, that's a little further back. Rodney Pete was throwing the yeah. ball around. Todd Marinovich, you yeah. know. I remember uh, – how about this Brad Otten uh, took him to the Rose Bowl, and that was Mike Riley's last year as the coordinator before he came up here. And actually, early conversations, how bad is this? Riley's trying to rank, recruit me up to Oregon State, and I'm asking him about <laughs> USC and Brad Otten. And <laughs> anyhow. Now you don't get your feelings hurt if some kid says, oh, you know, I watch UCLA or I watch something else. And you're like, okay, I used to do that too. Yep, been there, done that, you know, out of Southern California. And, you know, I'm proud of my roots, and that's where I grew up. And now I've been here a long time and got some good things going here in Corvallis. And we tell the recruits about it. Yeah, you got a shot here at a nine-win regular season, a ten-win season still out there for you. Uh, we've talked about what a far cry that is, but let me go back to your childhood. Did you ever watch the USC games as a kid and say, you know, I might want to coach one day, or were you more focused on the players and playing? 
No, at the time when I was younger, I was playing. Uh, I do think I got into late high school and just kind of enjoyed the schematics of it and, and all of that. And then I, I changed a little, especially early early college of what, looking at the game, I think, differently than just a player on the coaching side and, and always at, you know, just just enjoyed slash was passionate about the strategy of the game and, and attacking on on offense, obviously, from the start. You guys got uh, a win last week. You got to seven. That's good. I saw some guys come off the field banged up. It's like everybody this time of year. But where are you health-wise right now? Yeah, we, we took a few, actually a little bit more than we had. We've been pretty healthy overall. You're always going to lose a guy or two once in a while, but we've we had been good, except that game. We had a bunch of them uh, not be able to finish. Uh, a few of them working through. I think we're going to get maybe close to half of them back at least. Feel confident about that. And then we're going to have a few game time decisions. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, this is game 11. Bumps and bruises are taking place. Every program's dealing with it. And, and we're confident that we'll deal with it well with the, the depth of this roster and the next guys stepping in. Is that different from when you first got here when maybe you lost a guy and there was a huge drop-off or you're going to somebody who's pretty young? What's the difference now versus maybe in your first year when you got an injury? Yeah, quite a bit different um, in regards to the depth part. It's really quite a bit different even on the first-string guys. Um, and, again, I'm not down on our first year. I really appreciated that group. They worked hard. Um, but I do think we've continued to develop and recruit better and better. And where we're currently at is in a whole lot better situation than it was uh, first year. What do you see when you look at Arizona State on film? They've had a wild year, and they're a little up and down, of course. But what do you see? Yeah, they got some talent now. I mean, the receiver's a big-time player. they got two backs that can run the ball. I think they're physical at the line of scrimmage on both sides. I think they got the leading tackler in the league playing linebacker. He didn't even play last week, and he's still leading the league in tackles. Um, so they've got, they've got talent. They've been in some ball games that they could have won. Um, and, again, it's hard. Anytime there's a like transition like that, head coach you know, departs after whatever it was, week three or four, um, so they've got talent. They put it together. They can be really, really dangerous. Uh, we got to play our A game to to be able to beat these guys. The uh, you know when you get an interim staff, is it hard to scout because or, or how many games are you looking at typically when you're looking at a a team in a season? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, Sean Aguano is a great man and has done, he's a good football coach. Been a longtime high school coach. Really did a great job and has been there, so he knows that program and the and the roster, he's taken over now, and it's been over a month. And so we look back at the last four or five games pretty heavily. We definitely watch all the games. Um, but you get focused in on the last four or five and what they're really leaning on and what they're trying to do. Um, and ultimately not trying to chase a bunch of ghosts out there just because you're not totally certain, new, new, new kind of regime, new play calling, things like that. You just go off of what, what's on tape. Ben Goldbrunson, what you know is he is he where you want him to be? How much I keep asking you the same question, like can he take a step forward? Can he take a step forward? But you know, can you get more out of him in the pass game? Yeah, yeah, we you know, and it's not just him, but we can, and we're going to continue. I think we spread the ball around a little bit better last week. Still ran it fine, uh, but Ben was efficient when he, we asked him to throw it, and the type of you know third down in the second half, he was lights out. You know, really, he's got a chance to throw a touchdown pass toward the end of the first half that we drop, yep. and his numbers look even better. 
Um, so he's doing some solid things, really. We got confidence in him. We threw it more in the red zone. Um, you know, the first time he got a lot of time against Utah, he threw two picks in the red zone. And I look at the growth and development. I look at his red zone play this last game. It's night and day different. I had Kyle Whittingham on earlier. There's obviously a question about, you know, Bo Nix at Oregon, if he's going to play this week or not. And Kyle talked about injuries. And he said he's never going to say who's available or who's not unless he has to because it's not in his advantage. He also said he would agree if, like, all of the NCAA agreed, hey, we have to be honest about injuries, then he's happy to do it because, you know, he doesn't doesn't want to be the only guy who's telling the truth, I guess. Where do you stand on that? There's some truth to what he's saying. Like, if it was the same across the board on uh, the protocol of reporting injuries, there would be some real beauty to that. Um, because even like today, I get sent to me any article talking about Arizona State and what they're doing yep. at practice. and I, So any information you can gain on who's practicing, who's available, who's not, there's some advantage there. I mean, I even go back to my playing experience. When I'm playing quarterback early in the game, you're trying to identify, okay, they, they got the same starting 11 on defense that we prepped for the whole week, who you studied on film. And so the quicker you know, uh, the more comfort level comes, comes for the offense, let alone if you're trying to attack a guy or if there is a backup in the game, you're quicker to recognize that when you know it on Thursday versus you know, the first quarter of the football game. It feels like the quarterback position is the most important when it comes to that, mostly in most teams. After that, where do you go when, you know, if you can get a peek at a practice or if I could give you a drone and you could fly it in for a drill and see if someone's healthy, what position group would you want to see? Right, you know, <laughs> it's interesting. It's a good question because it, it does. I mean, you want to see it all. I think the secondary piece, if there's a guy or two missing, that can dictate some coverage. At the same time, if the D line is light, if they're missing an edge rusher, if they're missing their three three technique, um, you know, it's important for the quarterback to know. But then the, the offensive play caller and what you want to get to quickly if they're down a guy, or or even being down a guy would tell you sometimes what fronts and how much blitz you're going to get just because of the the nature of the position so there's a lot of information to gain all right so i i uh, i've had photographers at all these pac-12 games this season and one of my favorite photos is this photo of you and kyle whittingham before the utah game you're on the field you're doing that small talk thing that the coaches do when teams are warming up what are you guys talking about what do you what do coaches talk about in that moment you know what, that, you know, I actually remember that one conversation before the game. So Kyle actually grew up in Glendora before he finished high school. I think he moved to, to Utah. So we were sitting there talking about we went to the same middle school, junior high. Really? He, where his, his house was was not less than a mile from where I grew up. He lived pretty close to Glendora High School, actually a little closer than I did. Um, so we talked a bunch about that. We're talking about their practice facility, how far from the stadium it was, and, and the day and age. Um, I'll give you another one, too. So this last week, we we played Cal, Justin Wilcox. I've known this guy for a long time, right? We played against each other. Mm-hmm. He's at Oregon. I'm here, blah, blah, blah. So anyhow, you get comfortable when you're around guys that you kind of know. So we're, we're talking pretty honestly and frankly, and I won't go into topics we're talking about. Well, I come to find out the guy was mic'd up for Pac-12 Network. So... <laughs> I haven't called him yet because, you know, we beat him and all that, but i got to give him a hard time next time I see him. you, you got to give a brother a heads up. Right? <laughs> if the guy's like up, give the guy a heads up so yes. I can guide my conversation. Oh, that I would be horrified. I'd be like, what did I say? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs>
Oh, so, my goodness. I love lesson that. Lesson learned on my end. <laughs> yeah. Head coach's conversation before the, before the game. Yeah, you got to look over and go, hey, is anybody mic'd here? Um, all right. So, so uh, Coletto was on the show yesterday. He threw a beautiful spiral. Like, it might have been the best spiral I've seen all season Any, anybody in the league has thrown. He threw a beauty, and your guy made a great play in catching it. Like, are we going to see more Jack Coletto throwing? He did throw a spiral. I actually gave him a hard time, and, like, he's got to show off his arm because if he takes a little bit off of it, I think we score. Anthony yes. Gould's got to make a big-time catch. Yes. Jack's out there, like, he's got to show off all his skill sets. It was a great throw in regards to spiral and the big-time play, and, and that's not his first completion of the year. You know, we actually no. – yeah. He threw a ball against Utah, and it's part of his part of his repertoire. I like it. You guys look like you're having fun. Are you having fun coaching him? Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm finding moments of, uh, yeah, I'm having a ton of fun. You know, you always build up. You get to go on to the next game and find ways to get anxious about it and what we got to do and, and this and that. we got a great group of guys. The, these guys are working hard. They're fun to be around, um, competitive group, and anxious to, to get to line up with them a few more times. All right, you get uh, this week, uh, you will get Arizona State. Next week, you're back at home. Uh, you're doing some things you haven't done before. In you know, Like last season, you went to USC and won. This season, you won some tough road games, including that Fresno State game. It's been a while since Oregon State won at Arizona State. Is that something you guys talk about? Yeah, we, uh, you know, actually, I made them aware of that Tuesday morning, kind of preview the matchup and the situation and things, and, and there's just got to be something to learn from that. Uh, not a lot of success down there in the desert. I think that's actually a, a reoccurring theme. You look at the Northwest schools. We had the same conversation with UW, having a tough time going to the state of Arizona and winning. Um, there's something about it. And so just trying to grab their attention, I think these guys know they're going to be locked in. It's a talented group. It's a tough place to play. It's on grass. We're playing earlier than we normally do. Yep. So all those factors we gotta we got to balance. All right, Coach, I appreciate you making time. Good luck to you, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Yeah, sounds good, then, John. All Thanks. Right. There it is, Jonathan Smith. There you Now you know when these coaches are hobnobbing at midfield, talking to each other. Kyle Whittingham and Jonathan Smith went to the same middle school? That will show up in print at johnconzano.com at some point. Did they have the same teachers? Now, I'm just thinking, I'm just spitballing here. Like, Kyle Whittingham's considerably older than uh, Jonathan Smith. I think uh, I think when we talk about Kyle Whittingham's age, we're not we're not talking about, like, you know, maybe Kyle Whittingham, Kyle Whittingham was, like, with some of Jonathan Smith's older brother's friends. But uh, pretty interesting. Kyle Whittingham's 62, okay? Jonathan Smith, uh, I got him in his 40s somewhere, but let's say 43. So there's 20 years difference between those two guys. Maybe uh, maybe Kyle Whittingham went to school with some Jonathan Smith's teachers in middle school. But now you know. And who knew that Justin Wilcox was mic'd up for the Pac-12 Network and Jonathan Smith is... I have a good story on that front. I'll tell it in the next segment. I have a story that, that dovetails very nicely with Jonathan Smith not knowing that Justin Wilcox was mic'd up by the Pac-12 Network. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Bunch of people freaking out about these Taylor Swift tickets. Have you guys uh, you looked into this? 
A little bit. I mean, it's no surprise that Ticketmaster is terrible, though, right? Yeah, but people are uh, going crazy trying to get the ticket code and trying to get the tickets. And then, oh, if you don't get the tickets, the the uh, apparently the uh, tickets for Lumen Field in Seattle, like the cheapest ticket is like a five or six hundred dollar ticket now on a secondary uh, ticket market. Some of them go up to two, three thousand dollars, and the five or six hundred dollar ticket is like nosebleed tickets. So, so the Taylor Swift concert will not be my first concert. <laughs> not <laughs> happening. Not happening. I'm not going either. Uh, all right. So I want to talk a little bit about this thing. Jonathan Smith said that last week in the pregame, he didn't know that Justin Wilcox was mic'd up, and he's talking to Wilcox, and he's just shooting the breeze. I mean, it's a guy he knows. He's probably talking off the cuff, and all of a sudden. He figures out the guy's mic'd up for the Pac-12 network, which is pretty alarming. Like, you know, we've all been in those situations like, you know, you, where you don't want to be. Uh, but uh, not necessarily with a Pac-12 network audience listening. Um, years ago, I was covering Jerry Tarkanian. And Tark, you know, Tark painted outside the lines. Uh, I appreciated him and his uh, Father Flanagan appeal. There's a place for him in college basketball. But Tark was not polished. He was a little rough around the edges. Okay, He was highly evolved, but not polished. So he was a pioneer in the NIL space, so to speak. But he often, uh, you know, he didn't, he, his practices were open to the media, for example, and people would just be wandering in and out, and it was just very casual. So PBS had this, had this documentary series called, uh, I think it was called Frontline or something like that. And they reached out to me and one other writer who was covering the team and they said look we understand that it's not easy to be a media member covering a figure like Jerry Tarkanian in a small town like Fresno we were in Fresno California at the time Tark could do no wrong and he was doing wrong so when you called him on it people would show up at your door I got my window smashed in my car you go into the grocery store it'd be hostile and you know you just never knew what you were going to encounter and it, it got a little weird sometimes. So PBS said, we want to do this documentary. We want to send a crew around, follow you around for like a week, and document, like, what is it like to cover a team that has got this kind of figure in charge of it? It was really a good idea for a documentary. So they put a camera crew with the beat reporter, and they put a camera crew with me. I was a columnist. And they kind of just were around you as you had interactions with people, but you were mic'd up all the time. I got used to being mic'd up. You know, and so I was, you know, aware of the fact that I was mic'd up. But a lot of people I was coming into contact with, I would have to say to them, hey, I'm mic'd up. But I didn't really think about it when I came in contact with Tark himself. It's Jerry Tarkanian. We're at a practice. There's a cameraman there with me. He's 10 feet away from me. And I'm mic'd up. Okay, so I have a microphone on. I've got mic equipment on me. Um, I'm just... They're covering the team, and the camera guy is shooting. There's some implied, uh, when you're in a public space that it, in that state, there is some, uh, you know, it's implied that, you know, you're recording. And you're a public figure like Jerry Tarkanian. You're being recorded. But I'm in this hallway with Tark, and we're having kind of a, you know, I wouldn't say it was an argument. I would say it was a prof good professional debate about some of his players who were, struggling academically, and I'm saying to Tark, look, 
uh, he's saying this kid needs basketball, which he was right. He was talking about a player named Nick Irvin who needed basketball. And he had some NBA guys on that team, like Chris Jeffries, Melvin Eli, some guys who played in the league a little bit, bounced around. Uh, it was the year after he had uh, Chris Heron and Avondre Jones and Rafer uh, Alston and some other guys. But it was uh, it was kind of interesting to see the reaction of Tark when I would say something like, give me a success story of one of your players that doesn't involve basketball. Like, if I said that to most coaches, they'd be like, oh, Joe McGee played for me four years ago. He didn't play very much. You know, he's a he's an agent now. He went on to law school. He got a law degree. Or you might say, uh, you know, uh, you know, so-and-so was the first in his family to graduate from college. Like, you know, you'd have a success story to trot out. So Tark, Tark says, and he was, this was the beauty of Jerry Tarkanian. He would just tell you. He kicked me out of practice a couple times because he didn't like things I wrote. He said, you need to get out of here. I want you out of practice. And as he's yelling at me, uh, and I'm saying, well, why are you kicking me out of practice? He said, because, you know, you wrote X, Y, Z. And I'd say, Tark, if you kick me out of practice, it means you have to close the whole practice. You can't just kick me out of practice. You'd have to kick every media member out of practice. And then he'd look at me and he'd go, is that right? And i go, yeah. And he goes, okay, you can stay. And then we'd, like, we'd stop arguing. But so he just was, there was a beauty of him that was, uh, you know, he was honest, but he was also fiery, and he painted outside the lines. There's no other way to put it. So we're in this hallway, and I say to him, give me a success story that doesn't involve basketball, involving one of your players. And he, he looked at me. I'm mic'd up. There's a cameraman 10 feet away filming the whole scene, PBS. And Tark says, what do you think I am, a bleeping magician? He said, you know, some of these guys just aren't made for school. Like, you know, and he goes on this long rant about how some basketball players go to college just to play basketball. Well, PBS captures this on film. They are like, the producers are like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he said that. That was such an authentic moment. And he was right. I mean, if we're really being true, some college athletes go to college not to get an academic degree. We all know that now. Tark was the first to say it, and he was you know, beautifully authentic about it. And, uh, you know, so PBS had this great footage. Well, Tark realized after, he was like, somebody told him, hey, you know he was mic'd up? You know that all went on film. So the sports information department and Tark's people suddenly were all over PBS going, he didn't know. He didn't know that John was mic'd up. He wasn't aware of it. And they ended up negotiating with PBS that they could use the video and have the PBS, like whoever the reporter was, I think the, the reporter ended up being um, the uh, former Washington Post uh, sports columnist. I'm blanking on his name. But uh, the, they ended up doing kind of a vo voiceover with, hey, this is what happened. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, you know, they didn't allow the audio to, uh, to be out there. And so <laughs> it was really... Really an eye-opener to me that, A, Tark either forgot that I was mic'd up or he knew and then just pretended he didn't know that I was mic'd up. So I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Should PBS have pushed back and said, no, too bad, it, there's a camera there? They were trying to avoid getting sued, and Tark was trying to avoid looking like he didn't care about academics. Yeah, I mean, I think they both had their had their reasons. If, you know, the way, the way I, uh, I look at it nowadays is like when you're on speakerphone. Like people are like, hey, you're on speakerphone. 
Yes. Like, you ha- it has to be told that you are on speakerphone, especially if you have kids, like, don't curse, like, don't do these things. Be careful what you say. Yeah, yeah. like, if if you called me and, and your kids are in the background, you tell me at the beginning of the call. Yeah, I'll be like, hey, John, you're on speakerphone. What's going on? My kids are here. I don't know. What do you think, Peter? Do you think that uh, that uh, we should uh, we should have uh, let Tark's audio stand, or you know? I, I mean, I would have loved to hear it. There certainly is a reasonable expectation, especially you know you're famous and there's a camera around. I'm surprised PBS yeah. agreed to do that. I, I think he knew. I just think it's kind of funny. All right, Peter Sampson, the Pulse coming up. No, Todd no, Timbers no, coming Timbers. up. No Pulse, man. I'm looking forward to the pulse. All right, leave it right here in Portland on 750 The Game. Grab a podcast of this show. We're back tomorrow.